This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Many, 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 are listening to the Voices of Wrestling podcast with your hosts, Joe Lanza. Next out, go listen to some boring podcast where they're afraid of their own shadow. Okay? Don't listen to Joe Lanza. Because Joe Lanza's not changing. And Rich Cranch. Give me a name. Like Who delivers this guy in a big spot? Joe, don't yell at me. Like in, the, in the big spot. Who delivers better than this guy? Stop yelling at me. I agree. I am the king of banter. The most compelling voice in wrestling media, a reasoned and well-explained man, the leader of the hardcore wrestling intelligentsia, an internationally acclaimed broadcast journalist as heard on BBC Radio, a good family man, and after this week, you can add a... The captain, Rich Kreich, is off gallivanting in Iceland, of all places. I couldn't make that up if I wanted to. It is another vacation as Rich once again has skedaddled off to a faraway land, leaving me to pick up the pieces of one of the busiest flagship podcasts of the year as we are set on this episode of the best wrestling podcast in the world to break down the three big shows that took place last weekend, All Out, Royal Quest, And what may have been the best of the three, we'll find out later when we break it all down, NXT UK TakeOver Cardiff. So we'll get to all that. But first, there's a topic that unfortunately must be addressed. And listen, you know, it's like we've done a much better job on this show over the years avoiding and not wasting our time talking about Twitter drama. In the early days of the flagship, it was a staple of the show. Discussing the latest petty arguments that we were getting into on Twitter and, um, you know, just riffing on people who who said stupid things on that god-awful app and whatnot. But as the show grew, and as our listenership grew, those segments became less and less popular because we were talking to a wider group of listeners who aren't necessarily tuned into that world. Believe it or not, believe it or not, if you're a heavy Twitter user, this may be hard to believe, the entire world does not revolve around Twitter. Okay, I have repeated the following statistics many times. Because they were even eye-opening for me. 8% of the population, in the United States at least, and I'm sure it would be mirrored in other other countries, but 8% of the population uses Twitter. And 2% of those people account for 80% of the total tweets made on the app. So what we're really dealing with on Twitter 
is an incredibly small amount of people making almost all of the noise on the app. It's a scant few egomaniacs craving attention who think that the entire world needs to hear what they have to say. That's really what it is. And I raise my hand, I'm guilty as charged. Because, you know, with the amount of tweets that our account pumps out, I'm sure I'm part of that 80%. But the reality is, that's what Twitter is. And a large majority of people have no idea what's going on on Twitter, don't care about Twitter, will never download Twitter, will never look at Twitter, and will never make a tweet. So, over the years, as the show has grown and we have uh, put Twitter into its proper context, okay, and have scaled back on our Twitter usage as well over the years and have focused on just delivering a good show with good content. But there was a bit of a Twitter dust-up earlier this week that I cannot and should not ignore because unlike the other silly, insignificant, meaningless Twitter dust-ups that get ignored on the show these days, this one is bigger than Twitter. This one is actually something important. This is more than just a Twitter pissing match or, or some meaningless Twitter standoff uh, you know, with some dope that everybody else is rolling their eyes on. This is a legitimate, uh, serious situation and an important topic that deserves to be discussed, which occasionally, on rare occasions, will crop up on that godforsaken app. So... It does need to be addressed, and I do need to talk about it on the show. I think it's an important topic. And that topic is the state of wrestling journalism. Look, we all know it's bad. Wrestling is undercovered, and the large majority of people covering it are horrendous at it. They're amateurs. They don't know what they're doing. Um, there's a disproportionate amount of clickbait compared to um, the legitimate journalists who you can probably count on one hand who are out there uh, trying to and successfully doing a good job in covering pro wrestling. And one of the things that pro wrestling fans are always screaming from the rooftops is that pro wrestling needs better journalism. You always hear fans say this. And they're right. The problem is, a large majority of those fans, a good portion of those fans, continually prove that they're crying wolf. And they do not want better journalism in pro wrestling. They can't handle legitimate, solid, real journalism in pro wrestling. They get mad at people. When they do legitimate, solid, uh, quality journalism in pro wrestling. We see it all the time. And it cropped up this week. When, for some reason, it was considered a controversial opinion when I said 
that journalists and reporters should absolutely do their job and follow up on the Kylie Ray AEW story, which really shouldn't have been controversial at all. And the only reason I said it is it was a reaction to this sort of overwhelming idea that the story should be left alone. That we should accept it as a personal issue with Kylie Ray and that we should respect her privacy and that the story should be left alone. To which I and most intelligent people with a modicum of common sense found to be completely absurd. That's not how reporting or journalism works. I don't need to tell you that if you're listening to this show. Because if you're listening to this show, you're probably not a mouth-breathing idiot. And you probably have a shred of common sense and intelligence. And you probably understand how the real world works. And you're probably among those people who legitimately want wrestling journalism to be better. I'm one of those people because I know it's terrible and quite honestly I'm partially responsible for it because I have whatever small part I have in being part of the wrestling media. As most of you listening know we've broken our share of stories here. I do it behind the paywall all the time. We've done it on this flagship show. We've probably broken more stories than we get credit for, which is fine. We don't want to be known as a news site, and I have never claimed to be a journalist, and I never will, which is why, despite the fact that we've broken some stories here in terms of maybe wrestlers signing contracts or uh, wrestlers headed to new places or things of that nature, because I'm not a journalist and I don't claim to be, I know that I'm not equipped to tackle something as potentially sensitive as this Kylie Ray AEW story. But I also know that there are people in wrestling journalism who are equipped to tackle that type of story. And my point this week was only that there is nothing wrong with those journalists continuing to pursue that story. And again, unless you're a mouth-breathing fool with no common sense, who has no understanding of how the real world operates and has no concept of how reporting or journalism works in any other walk of life outside of wrestling, you're nodding your head in obvious agreement of that statement. But there was a, a, an inordinate amount of complete, and t- I could not, even by Twitter standards, I cannot believe the complete idiocy that I was hearing and dealing with and the debates I was having with seemingly brain-dead people arguing with me. Arguing with me that it would be out of line for journalists to pursue this story. Mind-blowing in its ignorance. I'm going to read you a couple of quotes from other people since maybe, maybe I'm not the most eloquent speaker. I understand sometimes when I make points, I'm very much a blunt object. 
I'm not very caring or sensitive in the way I phrase things sometimes. I'm a little rough around the edges and abrasive. I understand that. I get it, especially when I'm upset or confused at the utter ignorance being displayed around me. This is from Brent Brookhouse. You can follow him on Twitter at, at Brent Brookhouse. Spell just how it sounds. Um, he's been an MMA reporter for some time. He was involved in uh, Flow Sports slash Flow Slam, although I'm not sure he's willing to throw that on his resume. Although through no fault of his own, that was a absolute disaster. And he's someone who knows a thing or two about this because uh, he's uh, done this sort of work as a reporter. Here's what he had to say as he basically watched me argue with some of the dumbest people on Twitter over the course of 48 hours. And I quote, A lot of this gets to the heart of do you want wrestling to be taken seriously as a sport and or entertainment? Because reporting on both of those things in every other sport entertainment outlet is far more complicated than we like this person, so leave it alone. And that's not to say be an invasive prick and badger people demanding every detail of their private lives. But it does mean make your best professional attempt to pursue a story. One last thought. Sometimes working on a story sucks. Sometimes you end up having to pull a thread someone may not want you to and upset them. Real reporting sucks sometimes because your job can be at odds with your wants. End quote. And I mean, that really sums it up. Journalism and reporting has to cut both ways. You can't stand on the mountaintop and scream about how piss poor wrestling journalism is when you want Michael Elgin or Rich Swan or Sammy Callahan nailed to the wall and then demand that journalists pull off when it's Smiley Kylie Ray. I'm sorry, but it doesn't work like that. The knife cuts both ways. And as Brent put it, sometimes you end up having to pull a thread someone may not want you to and upsetting them. Real reporting sucks sometimes because your job can be at odds with your wants. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. Whatever dopey analogy your uncle used to say, you can insert it here. There is probably a story behind a tremendous pro wrestling prospect just entering the prime of her career on the, on the precipice of an enormous push, which should be the greatest time of her life and career, mysteriously disappearing one day and dropping off the face of the earth and the company sweeping it under the rug and not wanting to talk about it. And... You're telling me that there may not be a bigger story lurking beneath the surface? How stupid are you? I mean, really? This is normal? And as Brent said, 
that's not to say be an invasive prick and badger people demanding every detail of their private lives, which again was nothing I ever suggested. In fact, I said multiple times, if she wants to be left alone, leave her alone. But that doesn't mean you can't pursue the story and try to find out why she was driven away because this is not normal and there may be something more there. And when I made my comments, I had no clue what was going on, like everybody else, because no one has reported it. That's the point. But since I made those tweets and got piled on by the world's dumbest people, I've learned a thing or two about this story. And again, you got to know your lane. So I'm not going to be the one to break it, because I'm not equipped to do it. This is way bigger then don't be Joe Lanza, something I can't, I, I'm not equipped to handle this one. But I've learned a thing or two about the story since I made those tweets. Okay? And let me just say this. Time is going to prove me right on this one. You can call me insensitive all you want. You can fail to understand the message that I was getting across because you're thick and you're dense because I never once said that her privacy should be uh, invaded upon. And in fact, I said multiple times if she wants to be left alone, she should be left alone. Which, by the way, has she ever said she wanted to be left alone? Where's the quote? Show me the quote where Kylie Ray is saying that she wants to be left alone. Or is that just something fans are saying? Because they like smiley Kylie, which is fine. They don't want to see her privacy invaded on. Unfortunately, if you want real journalism and wrestling, some uncomfortable strings may need to be pulled. And I'm not advocating for a tabloid-style expose on uh, her most private and intimate matters. Far from it. What I'm advocating for is the pursuit of a story that smells real bad from the outside. Where anyone who spends half a second critically thinking could have surmised that there was something else bubbling beneath the surface. And in the last 48 hours, we've learned that that's true. This isn't about rummaging through Kylie Ray's garbage or digging up her most intimate private secrets. This is about journalists doing their jobs, which is continuing to pursue a story, even if one ultimately isn't there. Here are some more quotes, not from me. This one from Les Moore. Sheet Sandwich. You may have heard of him. Has a little wrestling uh, Twitter account where he keeps an eye on wrestling journalists. He has a background in journalism. Here's what he had to say. Again, from someone who's involved in the... Listen, if you don't want to listen to me because you hate me, I understand that. But I'm just giving you quotes from people who know what's going on. And by the way, nearly every journalist that I spoke to privately or publicly agreed 100% with the message I was putting out there. A lot of them didn't want to jump on publicly with me because they don't want to catch the heat. And I get that. I don't mind because I don't care if you don't like me. I say what I think and I say what's right and I don't care if you don't like me. 
but all of the journalists and reporters agree with me. And by the way, I know of several who are still pursuing this story. Because it's the right thing to do. And because it's not out of line. Which is patently ridiculous. Here's what Les Moore had to say. Quote, Reminder, given a lot of the tweets I've seen today on the topic, ethics in journalism typically pertain to the publication of information once a clear and rational decision can be made with regard to a story. There is virtually nothing that suggests it is unethical to look into a story provided you are pursuing the truth that the topic is legitimately newsworthy and that you're being fair and impartial in this pursuit. End quote. And that is a home run quote from Les Moore. Home run. What he's saying is, there's nothing unethical in pursuing a story, even if ultimately you don't run into something that's reportable. And quite honestly, I cannot wrap my head around the idea that some of you don't understand that. Other than you are just incredibly thick and dull and ignorant. There's no other explanation for it. Journalists don't fold the tent when the primary subjects of the story tell them that there's nothing to see here the way that AEW has done or that you need to please respect my privacy as Kylie Ray hasn't done but what basically fans have done on her behalf. When journalists hear that sort of thing, they don't go, well, all right, let's go home, guys. Honestly, it's the opposite. Those are your clues to continue looking into something. And again, a good journalist and a good reporter knows how to parse out the information that they eventually uncover and determine whether it's reportable. Just using a random example. But if Kylie Ray left wrestling because she found out that she has some sort of uh, disease or illness and doesn't want that out there for public consumption, a good journalist, once they find that out, would find a way to report that without reporting those intimate details. That doesn't need to be out there. And again, that's not what I'm suggesting happens. But stupid people, of course, immediately, that's what they jump to. But if there is a newsworthy reason that she was driven to make this decision, meaning when I say newsworthy, that either the company was at fault or she was at fault or someone was negligent or someone was abusive, those are all newsworthy things. And those are all absolutely fair game to report on. And you don't just sweep it under the rug because AEW wants you to. And you don't just forget about the story and, and stop pursuing it because Kylie Ray has gone radio silent and you're working under the assumption that she wants privacy. And quite honestly, and this might be hard to swallow, but even if she does want privacy, 
if there's a bigger story there lurking beneath the surface, okay, even if she doesn't want that story exposed, it may have to be exposed. And I know some of you don't want to hear that, but that is the truth. And I'm going to leave you with this because I don't want to continue to belabor this. Because again, this is something that I know, I am confident that 90% of you are in total agreement when it comes to this topic. And in, and in a lot of ways, I'm preaching to the choir. But I'll leave you with this. Based on what I've learned about this story over the last 48 hours, time is going to prove me right. And if you're one of those people who were vehemently disagreeing with me, particularly the ones that were nasty about it, because I had some tremendous civil discussions with people. I'm not talking to you. Time is going to prove me right on this one when the story eventually comes out. And if you were on the opposite side, then time is going to prove that you were dead wrong. Wrestling undoubtedly needs better journalism. And you can look no further than the media scrum after All Out when the only person in the room with any guts to question Tony Khan on this story was Sean Ross Sapp. And a tremendous job by Sean. Not only asking the question, but he managed to sneak in a follow-up. And every other coward in that room. And listen, I understand these scrums are tricky. And maybe there were a couple other people in that room. And In fact, I do know of a couple other people in that room who wanted to ask more questions about Kylie Ray? But as for all the other cowards in that room, you don't belong there. There was really one question and one question only to ask Tony Khan that night, and they were Kylie Ray questions. That's it. Nobody cares what the next show is going to be called or, or how they decided on that name. If those are the kind of questions you're going to ask at these things, you are part of the problem, and you are why wrestling journalism needs to improve. You've got the owner of the second biggest wrestling promotion in the United States five feet away from you, and those are the daft questions you're going to ask while with full knowledge that they're sweeping a, major sto- a potentially major story under the rug that you don't belong in the room. And we've got to improve the people that get into these rooms. It's an embarrassment. And fans have to decide if this is what they really want. Everybody talks a big game 
about wanting this to improve. You can't just talk the talk. You've got to walk it as well. Sometimes, oftentimes, journalism, particularly the best journalism, is uncomfortable. And if you can't accept that, then you really don't want things to get better. It's just talk. We'll be back with the reviews. on the street, would you pick it up or would you keep walking? I mean, it's a stupid question. Of course, you take the money. So let me ask you a question. Why do you keep picking winners and not betting on them? That's why I, Joe Lanza, go to my bookie. It's fast, it's easy, and they pay when you win. Let's face it. When you're betting, that's just as important as who you're betting on. I wouldn't be telling you guys to bet with my bookie if they weren't the best. So do the smart thing. If you're going to bet football this season, and most of you are, bet with my bookie. They offer live betting. You can bet on games after the kickoff. If by the second half it looks like your play is going to lose, you could always play the other side. Middle yourself. Get your money back. If you're the kind of guy that likes to bet a little and win a lot, they've got parlays. If all your picks come through, you multiply your winnings. No matter how you bet, Everybody knows that the NFL season is the best time of the year to bet. So what you need to do is what Joe Lanza did. You need to join now, and my bookie will double your first deposit. That's right. They will double your first deposit. All you have to do is use the promo code VOICES to activate the offer. The promo code is VOICES, V-O-I-C-E-S. And that's at mybookie.ag. Visit mybookie.ag today. Mybookie.ag. You play, you win, you get paid. Mybookie.ag. So, what do we start with? We got the three big shows. I think the best place to start has got to be AEW All Out. Where else can we go? I'm not starting with TakeOver Cardiff, that's for sure. So it comes down to Royal Quest and All Out. But with the events, that that's naturally the place to start. Chris Jericho did himself a little T-bone and mash. Loses the AEW World Title Championship belt. Somewhere in between getting in and out of his limo. The Millionaire Club Terminal at the airport. Is that a real thing? Crushing a steak at the Longhorn. Probably hitting on a waitress. As he's eating his meal. And then Chris realizes, at some point during all of this mess, 
that he's no longer in possession of the title belt. What an absolute disaster. And listen, if you think this whole thing was a work, and I we've had a few people suggest that it's, you know, a work. And here's why people are saying it's a work. They're saying it's a work because this all worked out for AEW's benefit. This was like the best thing that ever happened to them. I mean, this all happened, this all broke on Tuesday, right around the time that SmackDown came on. And the AEW title situation and this Jericho deal totally dominated social media, suffocated the SmackDown show, which was, you know, Bailey coming off the heel turn at Raw. Nobody was talking about that. Everybody was talking about Chris Jericho and the fact that he lost his title belt. So this was just another scenario where it all worked out for AEW. They've had a couple of those. They've had a lot of bad luck when you really break it down. You had whatever the Pac scenario was, which totally derailed Hangman Page's push, right? He never got properly heated up for this title match that we're about to talk about. That they were unable to recover from, the loss of Pac. It totally threw off their booking. Then they lose Moxley to the infection in his arm. But that one kind of worked out for them because Pac was named as the replacement and nobody was mad anymore because Pac versus Kenny Omega was a dream match and a really cool match on paper. So that one ended up working out for them and they ended up having an excellent match. And then uh, Cody Rhodes accidentally gets busted open on the chair shot from Sean Spears. Again, that one ended up working out in the end for them and was a happy accident because it added a little bit of juice, no pun intended, to the angle. And the accidental blood actually added to the intensity of both the, uh, the angle and the ensuing feud. So that worked out for them. And now this, Chris Jericho loses the title. And AEW once again are able to lean in and turn what could have been just a very embarrassing story that made them look like, you know, a second-rate fucking Mickey Mouse organization, but they were able to lean in and turn it into a positive with a series of home-run Chris Jericho promos. One where he's sitting in a hot tub wearing a scarf, drinking the bubbly, and this whole bubbly thing, uh, which was just... A throwaway comment. I mean, Jericho, is there any dispute at this point in hindsight that he was the right pick to be champion? I mean, even if you disagreed with that initially, if you thought Page maybe should win this match, but even if you were someone who thought Adam Page should win the title, you can't possibly still believe that. Like, Chris Jericho, from the moment he won the belt, and cut that impromptu promo walking around in the back. Including, you know, the whole bubbly thing, which is now blown up. Which is now a t-shirt. And a new catchphrase for him. And then the ensuing promos turning a terrible situation into a positive. With the missing belt. I mean, you know, Jericho has been an absolute home run. And exactly what I thought he would be if they made him the champion. 
And they were kind of like, again, much like the Cody chair shot busting him open, this was a happy accident that's, that has worked out in their favor. This whole belt scenario. I mean, this is all kinds of just free accidental press that they've gotten this week. And they've been able to leverage it with just some tremendous Chris Jericho content. Because if you're a wrestling fan and you didn't pay any attention to All Out and you didn't know that Chris Jericho was the AEW world champion, you know now. So um, that whole thing couldn't have worked out better. And getting back to my original point, if you think that it was a work, it was not. I mean, I can confirm. I talked to people in the company. Uh, it absolutely was a legitimate scenario. Plus, they filed a police report. They would have been breaking the law if they filed an erroneous police report um, you know, to put over some pro wrestling angle. That wasn't the case. The police found the belt. And, um, you know, they, they were, uh, you know, they were on the verge. They were attempting to file an insurance claim uh, I- I- until the thing was found. So, um, you know, very expensive title belt. But to me, even if they would have never recovered it, I think it would have been worth the fucking media attention they got. And the social media, uh, fuck, I mean, this whole situation essentially just, you know, it went viral. Which is exactly what you want in a scenario like this. And they leaned in and turned it into something fun. So the whole missing belt thing, they have it back. But my God, did they luck in to just a tremendous situation. And it's helped get the Chris Jericho gimmick and character over. So um, bad luck turning into good luck. They've had a lot of bad luck in this company. And most of the time, they've been able to leverage it into something positive. And... You know, I, I do think there's something to be said for that. I don't know that, um, you know, a lot of wrestling companies uh, would be able to do that. You know, do you think Impact Wrestling, for example, would have handled all of these scenarios in the manner that AEW did? I don't, I, I, I don't think so. Uh, you know, and not specifically the pick on Impact, but, um, you know, uh, I, I don't know that WWE would be able to lean in the way that this company does when they're faced uh, with something stressful or some strife and and end up turning it into uh, a positive. I think they just do uh, a tremendous job when faced with those scenarios. So uh, anyway, this review and all of the reviews on today's show are sponsored by Grapple. And the guys at Grapple wanted us to let you know that new updates went out to the App Store and Google Play last week to fix some of the different bugs and crashes. So if you've had any issues using Grapple in the past, download the update, give it another go. Uh, And even if you do use the app, it will improve your current experience. The update also has new functionality, and this is what I'm excited about. So you can now filter by your own ratings to see what your top matches are by promotion, by event, by month, by year. And you can also filter based on the averages from all users. You can now download Grapple right now for free. Just search Grapple. That's G-R-A-P-P-L. No E on the end. Search that at the App Store or Google Play. And for more updates, follow at Grapple App on Twitter. That's Grapple, no E, A-P-P on Twitter. And all of these reviews today will be brought to you by Grapple, and we'll be going over some of the uh, the Grapple ratings of both myself and the consensus. And uh, you know, if the consensus ratings are are deviate 
you know, very far from my own, I will tell all of you listening why you're a bunch of dopes and you don't know what you're talking about. So this should be a lot of fun. Anyway, it is time to talk about All Out. I did not watch the pre-show. In honor of the vacationing Rich Krejci, that's right, I blew off the pre-show. So we had Nyla Rose win the Casino Battle Royal to earn a spot, one of the two spots, in the, in the women's championship match that they're going to uh, have on the first television show. Look, I'm not a big fan of using a battle royal to determine a, a, uh, a, an entrant in a championship match. I've been vocal about that. I can't speak on the battle royal because I haven't seen it yet. I will watch it, but I have not yet. The other match was Private Party, defeating Angelico and Jack Evans, which, of course, uh, that also was the... Uh, the, the correct decision. There's no reason for private party uh, to lose again. Uh, this is an act that clearly, clearly they're looking to push long-term. And the Angelico Jack Evans team is not a team that is ever going to need a push. Uh, they're there to be a preliminary level team, a mid-car level team at best. Uh, you know, they can, they can feud with some of the big boys or whatnot, but um, this was an easy decision to, uh, to get private party on the winning side of the ledger, which brings us to the the show itself, the main show, and we'll start with the six-man tag opener. Oh, I guess I should mention too, I can't comment on um, Sadie Gibbs, Sadie Gibbs, and uh, B Priestley, you know, sh- basically shooting on each other in the um, in the battle royal because again, I didn't see it, so I'm looking forward to seeing that too. I saw a couple of clips online, and obviously the backstory there was when Willow Spray was. Uh, very critical of of Gibbs leaving a tour of Japan early when you know whether she did or did not have a death in the family or whatever uh Will Ospreay as as one of her trainers was offended by that or whatever and he had some things to say that maybe he should have said in private that's the whole backstory there and you know supposedly they got you know they, they were very uh stiff with each other in the battle royal and then uh allegedly came to blows in in the back. Um, but again, um, you know, it'd be nice if somebody in the media scrum would have asked uh, Tony Khan maybe about that too. But, uh, but you know, I guess, uh, but, but who knows, you know, people may not have known about that yet, um, to be fair, um, at the time of the scrum. But uh, I can't add anything to that either because, again, I did not watch the pre-show yet. But uh, anyway... Uh, let's talk about the show. So it opened up with SCU defeating a boy and his dinosaur, uh, Jungle Boy and Luchasaurus, and of course, uh, Marco Stunt. And as we kind of figured, Marco Stunt is going to be the pin eater for that threesome, and and that makes sense. And SCU still enormously popular, and you figured they would win this match. And uh, I thought this was a, a, a perfect opener. I think that SCU is a, a great act to open up these shows because the crowd loves them so you know it's going to get a good reaction it's going to get the show off to a hot start and uh and they can go so uh this is perfect this sort of trios match and it kind of makes me wish that more promotions would have uh trios titles and then treat those trios titles with you know a modicum of respect the New Japan Openweight Six-Man titles, they're very clearly the very last titles in the pecking order, and they have like nine titles in that company. Plus, you have the Rev Pro titles, uh, you know, that are that are sort of um, 
you know, within the New Japan universe that would also rank above it. So uh, that's definitely not what I'm talking about. I think Ring of Honor has done a decent job with their six-man belts because I think that, uh, you know, Villain Enterprises, um, you know, were quality acts to build those titles around in its in its early days. And I'm watching this match here, and I'm just thinking, okay, we've got SCU. We've got this, uh, you know, dopey team with the dinosaur and his two little buddies. And, you know, later on in the show, we see Orange Cassidy make his appearance and align himself with best friends. And then, you know, the Young Bucks could always take on a third. But just a lot of different possibilities for trio teams in the company. And I know you don't want to overdo it with titles, and I get that. And, and sometimes less is more. You have a men's title. You have a woman's title. You have a tag team title. I, I do kind of think there's room for one more title whether that's a women's tag team title or a trios title or a secondary title on the men's side. I do think that this company, especially if they're going to be a television company, is big enough for one more belt. Because, you know, maybe, you know, a, a, a title that, because you, know, you, you got to have matches that are compelling on TV. And, you know, it's like maybe you don't want to defend the world title on TV all the time. WWE in recent years has gotten away from that. And I think it's a smart move, right? But, you know, if you have a, a secondary men's title or something like a trios title, you can defend that on TV all the time. And it just gives your TV a little more juice. So I don't think they're going to go in that direction, especially initially, because it's, it's, it's a lot to kind of roll out you know, three titles at once to begin with, right? And you kind of don't want to overdo it. But down the line, I do think there's room to add a fourth title in this company. And quite honestly, if you want to be different, why not a trios title? And why not treat that trios title with the same or similar reverence that you treat your tag team titles and make it a big deal and defend it on TV all the time? So... It's something I'd like to see, but uh, I guess uh, I guess time will tell. Some of my observations here. Why was Jim Ross, why does he insist on referring to Jungle Boy as Jungle Jack Perry? He's the only one who does this. Excalibur, um, Golden Boy, or what the hell is that other guy's name? Golden Boy, right? They don't do this. They just call him Jungle Boy. Jim Ross is almost embarrassed to call him Jungle Boy, right? So he calls him Jungle Jack Perry. Is it embarrassment? There's another person in this match who's a fucking dinosaur, okay? But Jungle Boy is too embarrassing to make that call. So that, I mean, is that the reason? That can't possibly be the reason. He has a problem saying Jungle Boy, but he has no problem saying Luchasaurus, that doesn't make any sense, right? He's going to call a Dark Order match in about an hour later on the show, but he doesn't want to say Jungle Boy. Why does he say Jungle Jack Perry? And why are they allowing him to do this? Like, I know it's not that big a deal, okay? But it's like, you know, it's why? I just don't understand the mindset here of why he's calling him Jungle Jack Perry. And I guess this is a good time to talk about the commentary on the show. Look, I thought the commentary was pretty decent overall on the show. I'm very up and down on Ross. You guys know that. Eliminating Marvez. And listen, who told you that Alex Marvez wasn't going to make it? Okay? It was very obvious from the very first show that dude wasn't going to make it. 
And a lot of people thought they'd be stubborn because of his relationship with Khan and all that. And, and no, it, he had to go. So smart move there. This golden boy dude. Look, I can live without him. I don't think he's great or anything, but he's a massive improvement. Excalibur is what he is. I think he's massively overrated. I am in an extreme minority when it comes to that opinion. But I don't think he's an embarrassment, and I think he's a competent announcer. And I thought that this team on this show, this may have been the best announcing overall um, on any of the four shows yet for the promotion. So um, I think it was great, but I thought it was passable, and it was mostly inoffensive. So... And really, if, if, if my commentary is going to be passable and mostly inoffensive, I'll, I'll take that any day of the week with my pro wrestling commentary because a lot of times it's just flat out awful. Uh, what do we have next? Oh, so Pac and Kenny Omega. I thought this was fucking awesome. Oh, the six-man tag. I forgot to, uh, to give you the stars. I went three and a half on that. Thought it was a perfect little opener. The grapple consensus is 3.43. So once again, I proved to be an accurate star reader. Or I should say, the public proves to be accurate star readers because I am well known as an accurate star reader. You guys have to meet my standard. Anyway, Kenny Omega versus Pac. I thought this fucking ruled. Um, the work here, especially in the opening moments when I'm watching this match, you know the old Meltzer meme when he talked about the Jericho-Orton match a couple of years ago, a couple of pros going out there and Whatever, I forget the exact phrasing. But that's what this was, but in earnest. You watch Pac and you watch Kenny Omega in the opening minutes here, and you're just taken aback at how great both of these guys are. Just the way they move around the ring, how crisp they are with everything they do. Pac and just the realism he brings to the table and just, you know, I, I, I brag about him all the time on this show. And today is not the day for that, but just, you know, how well he gets his character over. The bastard. And these two guys just went out there and crushed it. I thought this was so good, so crisp. There was one minor flub towards the middle of the match, which Jim Ross, um, and this is when Jim Ross is good, where he covered it for it by saying that, you know, it's been a long, hard match. These men are sweaty. And they're losing their grips on each other. That's the kind of stuff that Ross does that's good. So, um, anyway, I really enjoyed this. And as I figured Pac won it, he won it with a submission move. And the win really meant more for Pac than it did for Omega. So, to me, this finish made sense. You could easily, you know, a loss is not going to hurt Kenny Omega, especially a loss to Pac. I mean, it's just, you know, it's... And, and, you know, Pac's making his debut, so he needs to win. And this immediately tells you that they think Pac is going to be a player. And as far as Pac versus Pac, I'll let Rich deal with that next week. I've never heard anyone say Pac. People have been saying Pac for the entirety of this man's career, and no one has ever corrected us until now. Now all of a sudden we're supposed to be saying Pac. Well, why didn't anyone ever correct it over the last decade, including, you know, Pac himself? And it's like, whether it's X-Pac or Tupac, and X-Pac was, you know, obviously a playoff of Tupac. I don't know. In American vernacular, P-A-C has always been pronounced Pac. 
I don't know how it's done in, you know, the little corner of England where he's from, you know, where, where they mispronounce everything. But it's like the rest of the world has been saying Pac for a decade. Now all of a sudden we're supposed to say Pac? I'm sorry. That's going to either take some getting used to or people are just going to ignore it. I mean, let's be honest. But this was probably my match of the night. That might surprise some people. And we'll talk about the other matches as we move along. But I had this at four and a quarter. Grapple users, 3.99. So basically four. So I was a quarter star higher than everybody else on this, which is fine. I can understand why you go four flat on a match like that. It's, it's a quarter star. It, it, it's really the same rating anyway. Uh, there's not a huge uh, difference there, but I really dug the crispness and and the nastiness of the... I mean, Pac was nasty in the early portions of this match, too. He was laying it in. Everything was stiff. I, I thought this was a really enjoyable match with the right winner and a very cool finish where Pac established a new finisher as well. So, Next up, we had the uh, Cracker Barrel Clash three-way. Jimmy Havoc wins this with the Acid Rainmaker through the... Uh, through the cracker, the literal cracker barrel in this one. And of course, this was your, look, this was a 15-minute plunder match and a very good one and a very entertaining one. And Jimmy Havoc to me, okay, I know that he takes a lot of shit from a lot of people because it's like, and I get it. I understand why he does. And this is not meant as a defense of Jimmy Havoc. Jimmy Havoc, I don't find him... Uh, I don't find him offensive as a pro wrestler. I get Jimmy Havoc. Jimmy Havoc, to me, is the Sandman of progress. And if you followed ECW at the time, or um, even went back and and watched ECW, you you understand what I mean by that. If you also watched progress, especially, you know, at the height of Jimmy Havoc, right? Everybody knows he's not a great wrestler. Everybody knows he doesn't have a very good traditional pro wrestling look, right? But there's that special crowd connection between Jimmy Havoc and the Progress fans, particularly at the Electric Ballroom. And there's that special connection between Sandman and the ECW fans where I'm just not sure it translates outside of those environments for either guy. ECW fans... Totally got Sandman. Sandman went to WCW as hardcore hack. And he went to WWE years later. And it just wasn't the same. You take these guys out of their environments where it's just that special crowd connection. The perfect time and place. The ECW arena for the Sandman, you know, that progress building for for, uh, for Jimmy. You throw in the entrance music for each guy. You know, enter Sandman for Sandman, the, uh, what is it, I hope you suffer for Jimmy. Ha- and then you take that away when they leave those environments. That hurts too. And the idea isn't that either guy was any kind of skilled, refined wrestler. That wasn't the point of the Sandman. That wasn't the point of Jimmy Havoc. Right? 
they're almost like the mascots of those respective companies. And they just had a, a, a crowd connection in their respective places that to me were very similar. The Sandman was a world champion in ECW and nobody who was an ECW fan at the time would have thought that that was any kind of bad decision or over push or anything like that. Same for Jimmy Havoc in progress when he was pushed as a top guy there. It all made sense. Do I think Jimmy Havoc will be a top guy in AEW? No shot. Not a chance. For the same reasons that there was no way Sandman was going to move up the ladder in WCW or WWF. It just wasn't going to happen. But I totally get the appeal of both guys in both places. And I enjoyed the fuck out of both of those guys in both of their respective home bases. And the idea that Sandman, and I talked about this behind the paywall, patreon.com slash Voices of Wrestling, the Joe Vember to Remember series, getting rave reviews. I just did, on episode three, a long monologue on the Sandman and what his appeal was to that fan base and how he, he just didn't move or wrestle or work like a traditional pro wrestler. And you kind of knew that he kind of sucked. But it didn't matter. It's the fucking Sandman. Same thing with Havoc. He's not going to get in there with Tim Thatcher and, uh, you know, do classic pro wrestling. It's just not going to happen. But he's Jimmy Havoc. He doesn't have to. I see people, you know, like Jim Cornette and others, they, they make fun of his body. It wouldn't be Jimmy Havoc if he went to the gym and he looked like a fucking bodybuilder. Then it's not Jimmy Havoc anymore. He's a dude who's a masochist who does stupid things and has no regard for his body. And you either get it or you don't. No one claims that he's great. His progress is Sandman. It is such a perfect analogy. They're essentially the same guy. There is a charm there with both of those dudes where I totally understand if only the people of South Philadelphia or the electric ballroom understand. I totally get it. I can't convince a 20-year-old from California who didn't live through ECW and only, you know, sees it 25 years later through, through eyes that didn't live it, why the Sandman was special. I, I can't, I cannot explain that and I cannot convince that person. And I really feel it's the same way for Jimmy Havoc. And I don't think he's ever going to come off that way in AEW or anywhere else. Maybe not even again back home. It was just a special time and place. Perfect for him. But I do think what this match showed was Jimmy Havoc can be a perfectly acceptable undercard 
plunder brawler in this company because this was a hell of a match and all three guys brought something to the table. Janela with his just total disregard for, uh, he's just a madman. All these guys are mad. It's the same description for all of them, but they're all madmen in their own weird, offbeat ways. Jimmy Havoc, they, you know, the, the, the emo masochist. Darby Allen and you know, whatever the fuck he is. Live fast, die young. And then Joey Janela, the party boy. Do anything for a pop. Or in the context of kayfabe, do anything to win a match. So, um, you know, I thought this was a shit ton of fun. Grapple. I went notebook on this. Four-star plunder. Grapple users, 3.6. Dark Order, defeat the best friends. They earn a bye in the AEW Tag Team Title Tournament. So best friends will presumably be entered in the tournament, but they'll have to go through the first round. Dark Order were pretty dominant here, and I thought, um, we'll get to Dark Order in a minute, but I thought Ch- I thought Trent was very good in this match, selling his ass off for Dark Order, who who really dominated the match. In all honesty, I mean they did build the one hot tag to, to Chuck Taylor, and uh, he cleaned house and did some things. But for the most part, this was Dark Order just working over Trent, and Trent doing a tremendous job um, in, in taking that beating. And and Dark Order, uh, look, their work was fine. Here's the problem with Dark Order is. Tons of reports on social media that the fans in the building use this match as their as their break, as their intermission. To go grab a beer, go grab a slice of pizza, go to the bathroom, catch a smoke, whatever the case may be. I will say this, and and, and, and you know, most of this match was worked in front of a dead crowd. By the end of the match, for the first time ever, Dark Order did receive some boos. There were some people booing the Dark Order by the end of this thing. Um, so are people coming around on the idea that they hate these guys or was it people finally turning on the act and rejecting what the company was presenting them? I don't know the answer to that. And it really wasn't a large enough portion of the crowd to where I think it was significant anyway. But I thought it was worth mentioning that finally there was some sort of reaction to these goofs other than total indifference. So... Uh, lights go out, Orange Cassidy shows up, he does the uh, hands-in-the-pockets dive to the Dark Order, and then hugs it out with the best friends, or at least they hug him. The thing about Orange Cassidy is this. I have no use for Orange Cassidy, okay? The thing about Orange Cassidy, and, and it's like, if you don't like Orange Cassidy's act, people are, like, offended, well, don't you know that this guy can really go? I mean, he can wrestle. And, and I'm like, okay, yeah, I know that. I've seen the matches, okay? But none of that means anything if I have to sit through his act and his routine, which does not appeal to me. And if you're an Orange Cassidy fan, that's fine. Like what you like. But surely you can understand if other people don't understand why. You, you, I shouldn't say don't understand because it's not like this is high art. Everybody gets the Orange Cassidy gimmick, okay? That's the other thing. 
People try to explain the gimmick. Look, I understand the gimmick. It doesn't mean I have to like it. I think it's silly and I think it's goofy. And it takes me out of the match, even when he snaps out of it later in the match. And you know, it doesn't matter. At that point, he's already lost me. And what I don't understand is how Orange Cassidy fans can't understand why some people might not be into this. It should be pretty easy to understand why some people don't like Orange Cassidy. And all, and I'm happy to see what's happening because this has been a long road for this guy. But that doesn't mean that I have to like his act because I don't. It doesn't work for me. And that's okay. There's so much talk in wrestling. Wrestling is for everyone. And, you know, uh, there's, there's different kinds of wrestling that appeal to everybody. And comedy wrestling is good. And grapple fuck is good. And death matches are good. And, and wrestling's for... Well, you know, that, and I agree with all that. Right? But don't tell me what I have to like and, don't, and, and not like, though. You're free to pop for Orange Cassidy and, and, and be into his goofy little gimmick. And I'm free not to like it. And if I leave you alone, if you enjoy it, then you should leave me alone if I choose not to enjoy it. It doesn't work for me. Vice of act, okay? Now, he's gotten over in the current indie climate. And, you know, it's like WWE signed everybody, right? And it left a giant void in indie wrestling. And what have we seen a rise? We've seen a rise of deathmatch. We've seen a rise of comedy shit and irony shit and deathmatch. Right? That's what has... It left a void for all of these unsigned talents, some of which are unsignable. Some of your deathmatch guys and whatnot, they're unsignable. So what are these indie promoters supposed to book if all of the good wrestlers were signed. I think that's in part why you're seeing this uptick and this surge in popularity of Deathmatch, which was basically, had disappeared for 15 years. And comedy and irony. Because there was a void left when WWE signed everybody. And that's what was left on the scene. And this is who was left to be booked. So it left an opening for a promotion like Game Changer to just take the scene by the throat and become the fastest growing promotion, indie promotion at least, in probably the world. And they're doing a tremendous job. And a lot of that is built around Deathmatch. Deathmatch hasn't been hot in a long time. And there's a void in the marketplace. And Game Changer has filled it, largely on Deathmatch with a little bit of comedy and irony. And other promotions have followed suit. All of the draws and all of the great wrestlers are gone. They're signed. You got to push somebody. You have to focus on something. And I think that has helped Deathmatch reemerge, and I think that has helped people like Orange Cassidy emerge. Someone like Orange Cassidy was not going to find his way on a Battle of Los Angeles lineup in 2014. It just wasn't going to happen. 
But when there's more, you know, when there's limited options on quality wrestlers and, and indie draws, because everyone is signed, now it's opened up for people like that. And actually, and, and, and listen, he's done a, he's a, he's, he's incredibly talented. That doesn't mean it has to be for me or has to be for you. And I'm really curious how he does in AEW because I'm not sure once we pass the introductory phase and look, I'm not sure like that is going to have. He's going to have to adjust at some point. And based on what I've seen, he he's probably talented enough to do so. Once this current incarnation of his act wears thin. And we've seen him subtly evolve the act from when it began. So anyway, that's my Orange Cassidy rant. As Dark Order earned the buy. Um, look, I went three stars on this. It was a match that I would call good. Grapple consensus, 2.68. You know, if people cared about Dark Order and there was more heat for these matches, I mean, it's not like their work is bad. There's nothing wrong with their work. Next up, we had the match to determine Nyla Rose's opponent for the AEW Women's title. This was Riho versus uh, Hikaru Shida. Riho wins this one. And I don't know, man. I'm waiting to be blown away by these Joshi. And I'm starting to accept that it's not going to happen. I, you know, I, maybe my least favorite match on the show. And it wasn't a bad match because there were no bad matches on this show. But um, look, I went three stars on this because it was a perfectly acceptable match. But it wasn't anything that I thought, I, you know, was it was nothing special. It, it, it didn't make me more interested in either one of these wrestlers. Um, I've seen them, what, you know, two or three times now each, and neither one of them are jumping off the page for me. Um, I have, look, I don't follow modern Joshi. I have no idea if these are the two star Joshi that AEW is using or not. If these are the best of the best, then I am thoroughly unimpressed with, uh, with, with the wrestlers they have chosen from that scene because I think they're fine, but there's nothing special about either one of these wrestlers. And, I am not excited to watch either one of them moving forward. I gave it a chance. This is show number four. And, you know, I just I just come away. Maybe my bar was too high. And, you know, because I the last the last time I thorough, you know, followed Joshi Hardcore, you know, was Akira Hokuto and Minami Toyota and that era. And I mean, from what I've seen, none of these girls can touch uh, that era of Joshi. I mean, it just, it's, it's not even comparable. At least what I've seen here in AEW. I'm just talking about what I've seen here in AEW. Okay? Um, so, maybe my bar is just set too high. But I have not been impressed at all. Um, I don't think they've been unimpressive. They've just existed. They've just had, they've gone out there and had nice little three-star matches every time out. And usually, 
the Joshi match on these shows or on the you know the, the bottom half of the show. I thought this was the least interesting match on the. This was the worst match on a show that didn't have any bad matches. Which that, a tough break, but you know facts are facts. I don't know. Um, everything else was fucking better than this. I don't know what you want me to say. So, um, Riho wins. She was the smaller wrestler. She was selling most of the way. Sheeta, uh, a couple of times during the match, it looked like she was running out of ideas. Uh, this wasn't really worked at, again, maybe this is an issue with my expectations. The pacing of this match just didn't feel like, I feel like they could have, um, I feel like they slowed this down or dumbed this down for the audience. And again, if you know more about Joshi than I do, maybe I'm incorrect and this is the way they always work. If it is, I really don't understand the hype. I, I don't know. Am I out to lunch here? Were people blown away by this? I, well, I, well, let's go to grapple. I went three flat. The grapple users went 3.11. So basically the same rating. And according to grapple, this was, I have this as my least favorite match of the night. The only match on the show that the grapple uh, consensus went lower on was the best friends versus dark order 2.86. So, and I went three on both of those matches. It's not like I thought the Dark Order best friends match was, you know, head and shoulders better than this bout. But um, I enjoyed it more, slightly. Um, It's just not connecting for me. And I think maybe it's just I need to lower my expectations. Uh, I, you know, here's the bottom line, okay? Here's the bottom line with this. Bull Nakano... And Manami Toyota are not walking through that door. I think that's basically my feeling on the Joshi so far in AEW. And maybe it's a Joe Lanza thing. And I need to adjust my expectations. Cody and Sean Spears. This was your, um, you know, once again, it's the Cody segment. So you've got your your throwback match of the night, your territory battle. And I don't think it hit the heights I wanted it to hit, but I did enjoy this. If you didn't, you know, enjoy that Arn Anderson run in on some level, I don't know what to tell you. Um, Cause that was a lot of fun and totally unexpected. Tully, uh, he just adds so much to Sean Spears because Sean Spears is not a naturally charismatic guy. And I think he does need some help in that regard. And right off the bat, Cody Rhodes gets into the ring. He does the toe pay on Spears. And then he goes right after Tully and punches him in the head. And Tully can't bump like he used to. But he took that bump on the floor. And then, uh, you know, he was involved in the rest of the match. And then Arn came out to even things up. And then, of course, we had the post-match stuff with MJF teasing the turn on Cody. Which I think is going to be a lot of fun. And it's just subtle enough to where... You know, you see kind of like it makes you think and the announcers aren't hammering you over the head with it like they would be in WWE, which I love. And I love the fact that the MJF character has this kind of depth where he's, you know, a total heel in the promotion, right? But then he's also friends with Cody, who's kind of a tweener, a face-leaning tweener, firmly face-leaning now that he's feuding with Spears. And it's like that gives these... And it doesn't insult our intelligence. They don't have to be these black and white cartoon figures. And I like that. 
So there's that whole aspect to it where, you know, I think everyone assumes that at some point MJF is going to turn on Cody, but, you know, who knows? We'll see. Ways There's no reason the feud can't continue. I don't think it has to end here because Cody won. It's just not the usual route that you take when you're doing a program like this. Normally, the heel is going to win. So what I'm curious about is how they can pivot that and keep things interesting even though Spears lost. So uh, that's my take on that. I went three and a half on this. I thought it was, uh, um, you know, a lot of this. Uh, look, the match itself wasn't any kind of great match, but I thought aspects of this were a lot of fun. And the uh, grapple consensus on this was nearly identical, 3.45, 3.45 as we speak. So uh, next up, Lucha Bros, Young Bucks in the ladder match. And this was uh, pretty much the consensus match of the night, both on grapple uh, and on cage match. And, you know, just, you know, scanning social media, uh, most people felt that this was the best match of the night. And this was great, and these guys took a bunch of insane risks, and this was highly entertaining. But as we've spoken about a million times, I just happened to be burnt out on this pairing, and I happened to be burnt out on, you know, this kind of match. You know, the, 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 the ladder the ladder match with the big uh, bumps and the crazy spots. And yes, this was very entertaining to me on just a, you know, a visual uh, level, but it did not get, um, it, it, there's just a limit on how much I'm going to enjoy a match like this, particularly with two teams that I'm sick of watching work together. So um, a match like this where they take the risks that they did and they put their bodies on the line and everything is so well executed I can't in good conscience go lower than four stars. I just have to. So that's what I did. I went four stars on this. The uh, grapple ratings were 4.42. On cage match, they had it at nearly nine. It's an 8.97 as of this recording. So people love this, and I understand why they did. And, um, you know, it's just uh, a match style that I'm kind of tired of and two opponents that I'm tired of. So there's a limit to how much I was going to enjoy it, but it was obviously well executed. And, you know, I talked about Game Changer earlier. Game Changer had a big show last weekend too. And they had like a six-way ladder match. And um, it's like you watch that Game Changer match, right? And I watched it. And then you watch this match and there's just such a difference in ability and execution and... It's like these four guys are just so much better than the dopes in the Game Changer match. And it's like, and it shows, you know, they're both essentially the same match. It's, it's one spot after another. They're stunt shows. They're both stunt shows. But it's like, here you have four of the best wrestlers in the world who are intimately familiar with working with one another and are, are, you know, major league talents and the execution level is just so much higher than you watch the Game Changer match and they're blowing spots left and right. And don't get me wrong, the Game Changer ladder match was a fun, it was a fun, it was a fun match. It was fine. But they're blowing spots left and right. And then you've got Jimmy Lloyd, who is in terrible physical condition. And, you know, he's, in, he's, he's not a guy who's in great shape. He probably doesn't have tremendous upper body strength, okay, is my point. Uh, it doesn't look like he spends hours in the gym staying in top peak physical condition. That's for sure. He's not, you know, 
super experienced. He's like 21 years old. He's only been wrestling three or four years on low-level indie shows, right? And he's attempting to do this spot with G-Raver where they climb to the top of the ladder and there's light tubes set up on top of this ladder. And I think the idea was Jimmy Lloyd was going to give G-Raver sort of the old El Generico turnbuckle brain buster, right? Or something similar. We don't know because it was obviously botched. But that looks like the direction they were going. And Lloyd, because he's not in any kind of good physical condition, and he's inexperienced, and they're trying this on top of a raver, who again is just a career plunder guy on, on the low level, and he's again, you know, there's a severe lack of talent on the indies right now, and these are the kind of guys who are going to get pushed and are going to be featured, right? So you have these two guys, and they blow the spot, okay? And G-Raver gets sliced open, and it could have been a lot worse than it was. It could have been, you know, he could have cut an artery, which is what everybody was fearing. And it's like, it really gives you appreciation for the experienced pros, like the Lucha Bros and the Young Bucks, who go out there and basically have the same exact kind of match but everything is just executed in just a pristine, crisp way where there was maybe only one or two times where you seriously fear. I mean, the one bump Matt, Matt, Matt Jackson took uh, through where he went, he, he was supposed to go through tables. He went through one table and missed the second one and, you know, nearly conked himself out. That was really the only super scary moment in the match where you felt like these guys aren't in control of their bodies right now. Whereas you watch the Game Changer match and it's a bunch of fearless dudes who are just doing crazy shit, blowing half of the spots, and you feel like everyone is in danger every moment of the match. That's the difference. So, do I have an appreciation for this match between the Young Bucks? and the, Absolutely. Even though I'm a little burnt out on it, I can totally appreciate how awesome these guys were in this match. I just want something fresh for both teams. And here's what, and I don't want Jimmy Lloyd giving people brain busters on the top of ladders. I, I can live without it. Okay? No offense to G-Raver. It's his body. He can do what he wants. Okay? I, listen, I'm not saying that these guys, uh, you know, I'm not advocating getting rid of death. These guys have all the death matches they want. Okay? But it's like, some things are just a little too ambitious. That's all I'm saying. And then we had Chris Jericho becoming the first AEW world champion, defeating Adam Page. I thought this match was uh, very well worked. I thought Jericho, as far as an individual performance, was better here than he's been in some of his recent matches. But I thought Adam Page was fucking phenomenal in this match. Taking bumps, uh, you know, working with uh, with some fire. The critiques I would have is they've been telling you this story that Hangman Page has a bad knee for months and months and months, and that it really didn't play into this match at all. And I really thought it would. I thought that would be Adam Page's sort of out. That Chris Jericho takes advantage of the bum knee, 
and the idea planted in your head that a healthy hangman page one day is going to get his hands on Chris Jericho and beat him when it's, you know, when his body is healthy. But that's not how they played this. It's not how they played this at all. And I was surprised by that. And then Hangman really gave Jericho everything he had. He hit all of his big moves. He hit the buckshot lariat. He hit his finisher. And Jericho kicked out. And then he hit a second buckshot lariat. And he went for a second finisher. And that's when Jericho reversed it moments later. Hit the Judas effect to win the match. A beautiful Judas effect, by the way. Here's the thing about the Judas effect. Okay? The first one he hit on Omega uh, did not look great. To put it, you know, mildly. But he nailed that this looked, the finish here looked phenomenal. So it's like, you can't even like, it, it, it's not like the move is ironic anymore because he, it, it's actually just a really good move. It looked great. And here's the thing about the Judas effect. When he hits it, it's lights out. Everybody knows now, if he hits that move, the match is over. What more do you want? It looks nasty, and it ends the match. It's a great finisher. It's a great finisher. It just had a little misfortune there where, you know, the, the, when he established it versus Omega, it just, you know, it, it, it didn't look so hot. But if they, you know, the one here against Hangman looked gorgeous, and everybody knew it was lights out from there. But I thought this was a tremendous performance by Hangman Page. I think that these Jericho matches just have a totally different feel to them. Uh, they just, they feel, you know, they, we've been saying this for two years now, they feel like fights. You know, and, and I mean that as a compliment. He, he, he knows his limitations. He knows what he can and cannot do at this stage of his career. And he's just good enough where he doesn't go out there and embarrass himself. He's, he's still good enough to be a major league pro wrestler in the main event of a major league event is what I'm saying. Even though he isn't what he once was. And he's adjusted his match style to fit those limitations. And the crowd was amped for this. And they were with it the whole way. And one thing I was paying attention to is with you know the shitty build of Hangman Page coming in, how the fans would react when Jericho won. And there was disappointment. And that's a good thing for AEW, where you didn't have a sold-out arena full of people cheering Chris Jericho's win. There were people that were disappointed that he won. And there were a lot of stunned fans and disappointed fans reacting to the hangman loss. And I think they did a good job in the closing moments of the match, the closing stretch there, making you think that hangman was on his winning rally because he hit the buckshot lariat and his finish and didn't get the pin. And then he regained control moments later and went through the same sequence. So as a wrestling fan, you're used to that meaning, okay, he's doing it again. This is going to be too much for Jericho to overcome. He's going to keep Jericho down this time. But then Jericho reversed the finish and then he hit that gorgeous Judas effect uh, moments later and he won the match. So uh, well done. Nicely structured. It meandered a little bit in the middle. It wasn't a perfect match. It wasn't a match of the year contender, but I went four stars on this. It was good enough to crack the Jolanza notebook. Grapple users, 3.58. So this was the really the one match on the show where I differed greatly 
in terms of um, what I thought of the match. You know, you're talking about a half a star here. Anything less than a half a star to me doesn't matter. This was almost a half a star. So I've been a little bit higher on the scale when it comes to Jericho's stuff. It just connects with me. So this doesn't surprise me that I thought it was a bit better uh, than consensus. As far as the show as a whole, um, this wasn't as good or or and, and, and didn't feel as special as Double or Nothing. I don't think they've been able to match that yet. But I think All Out was much better than the previous two shows, and it should be. This was a full-on pay-per-view. The other two shows were, um, you know, they were secondary shows, uh, you know, for Bleacher Report Live or 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 uh, or, uh, or whatnot. So it's uh, this should have been a better show than those shows, and I, th- I think that it was. And I think that um, after Fighter Fest and Fight for the Fallen, some of the bloom may have been starting to come off the rose a little bit, and I think they got things back on track here. I don't think AEW has had a bad show yet. And I think that they've had one great show. And this show, I think, was a very strong show. Very good show. The booking was good. The only weird thing, as I said, was Cody beating Spears. But I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and see where they go with that. Once again, we had clean finishes up and down the card. Jericho wins clean. I love Chris Jericho uh, and the way he's being presented in that. He doesn't cheat. He doesn't use sleazy means to win. He's, he's a heel because he's a fucking asshole. You root for the other guy because Jericho's a dick. And I think that is such a subtle, simple change to American wrestling that has been needed for a long, long time. No more of this black and white cartoonish bullshit where the heels are cheaters and they're liars and and they can never win fairly and, and, and none of that. He's beating all of your heroes and he's a cocky, arrogant asshole as he does so and that's why you don't like him. And that's why you want to see somebody beat him. And that's all you need. It's a little more sophisticated than what we usually get in American wrestling. And I appreciate that. It's odd because it's so simple yet feels more sophisticated. It doesn't feel like they're appealing to children or attempting to appeal to children. And I like that. Chris Jericho has just bested his opponents. They have no answer for the Judas effect. And I like that. Someone's going to have to figure out that move. And they're not going to beat a guy who has cheated his way to the top, they're going to have to beat a guy who's been unbeatable. The crafty veteran who finds a way. And Adam Page wasn't ready yet. And even if the push had gone as planned, I don't think he would have been ready yet. So I thought the show was well booked. I don't have a problem with any of the winners or any of the directions with the asterisk that I'll wait to see how the Cody Spears thing plays out. And I think that this was a very good show that has me excited about the TV that's coming up. And when we come back, we're going to take a look at New Japan's Royal Quest. 
and NXT TakeOver. NXT UK TakeOver Cardiff. It's such a mouthful. Anyway, we'll be back. Japan, Royal Quest, and NXT UK TakeOver Cardiff on this portion of the show. But first, a couple of more AEW notes. One thing I forgot to mention was uh, the singing of the national anthem at the start of all these shows. That's got to go. It is so corny and hokey and adds nothing, and I have no idea why they're doing that. Um, I'm not coming at this from some sort of, you know, anti-gignostic point of view or something like that. I don't care about any of that. I just think it's corny. And um, we haven't seen that in pro wrestling in a number of years where they're doing national anthems or whatnot. Maybe WrestleMania, they sing America the Beautiful. Is that what they do? America the Beautiful? I think that's goofy too. Um, I think they think it adds gravitas to the events in the case of WrestleMania. Um, But this is just, it's, it's, let's just get on with the show. We don't need the, the national anthem. I just think it's silly. We're here to watch wrestling, and it's just a waste of five minutes. So, uh, it's goofy, and they really need to do away with that. Second thing is, we just talked about how, um, you know, I want to see how the Cody Spears things plays out on TV before I decide what to think of Cody beating Spears, which didn't seem to make a ton of sense for the babyface to beat the heel first match out in the feud news broke uh, while I was uh, in between the first the, the second part and the third part of this podcast that the main event for full gear is going to be Cody challenging Chris Jericho for the AEW world title in the main event so there you go now Cody over Spears makes perfect sense and it all falls into place and I'm glad that news broke before I was done uh, doing this show so Cody no matter what way you want to look at it number one he's arguably the most over wrestler in the entire promotion so it makes sense to get him into a big pay-per-view main event number two he if you know the win-loss records which you know I hadn't talked about but they have finally begun to emphasize on this show they were showing everybody's win-loss records both overall and in singles matches, and in the case of the singles matches, Cody is 2-0-1. He's got the win over Dustin. He's got the win over Spears. He's got the draw against Darby Allen. He has the best record of anyone aside from Chris Jericho, who is obviously the undefeated champion. So from a statistical standpoint, which is something that they have promised that they're going to emphasize, he is the number one contender. From a logical business standpoint, traditional pro wrestling booking, he's arguably the most over person in the company, and he's coming off a win on the previous pay-per-view. So you figure that a Cody Jericho match, which is also a fresh match, uh, can be a good drawing match. So from that perspective, it's good booking. I don't see any negatives here. I don't see any negatives here. It seems to be 
the obvious choice. You can't go right back to Hangman Page, right? Um, I suppose you could have done Pac, but that's kind of weird with the heel-heel dynamic. So who else is there? Omega's coming off a loss, and he's 2-2 two and two as a... What is it? 2-2 two and two as a singles wrestler? Yeah, he's 2-2 two and two as a singles wrestler. So, um, you know, is he 2-2? Two two? Yeah, Kenny, he beat... What, what's his sing? No, he's one and two as a singles wrestler. He beat he beat Shima, but he lost to Jericho, and he lost to um, Pac. He's two and two overall because he won the uh, a tag match. So I mean, there's really nobody else to go to here. Um, so it all makes sense from multiple perspectives to put Cody in that main event against Jericho. I think it'll be a uh, a match that will draw. And as far as the in-ring, you know, these Jericho matches, I think, probably at this point in his career, have a ceiling on them. If he can keep going out there and performing the way he did against Hangman Page and the way he's looked in some of his, uh, you know, recent New Japan matches, then he can still go out there and and have main events that are perfectly acceptable. So, and I think Cody, uh, look... He's a guy who will find a way. He's another one. It's like he always finds a way to have a perfectly acceptable match, even if he's not, you know, threatening your match of the year spreadsheet. So um, no problem with that announcement. There was also this weird announcement on Chris Jericho's website that he's defending the AEW world title on television before Full Gear. I don't know if that is anything officially announced by AEW, but that was something that was on, you know, Chris Jericho's website. So who knows? But, um, you know, uh, Cody being announced for full gear kind of sucks the juice out of, you know, whatever world title defense that Jericho may or may not have on TV. So we'll see about that. But listen, now that Sean Spears result makes perfect sense because they knew they were going into a, uh, you know, Cody world title challenge. Now Jericho should win the match. You know, I talked about Jericho a lot on part two of this podcast. He's hot. Jericho's hot right now. And, um, you know, and and it's not the time to take the title off him. And I don't think Cody's the guy yet. So, um, and of course, there's going to be massive criticism if Cody books essentially, if Cody essentially books himself to be world champion of his promotion. There's going to be massive criticism from that direction. Now, there's going to come a time when either Cody or Kenny Omega should win the title. And you're still going to hear those criticisms. But provided it's done at the right time and it's the right thing for business, those criticisms won't be fair. I think Cody beating Jericho at full gear, um, at least right now, feels like it would be rushing to get to that point. I don't think... Now, the TV could change that. If they build to this match, you know, depending how the build goes, it might feel like the right time. But I, right now, it doesn't feel like that, and I don't anticipate changing my mind. I think Jericho is the perfect champion for right now. Um, I think he brings them all kinds of uh, positive attention. I think he's tremendous in the role. You could tell that he's having a great time in pro wrestling right now and in the role that he's in. So there's a lot of positive energy there with Jericho. And 
I don't think that they should change courses on that quite yet. And then there's all kinds of speculation that this could be finally where MJF turns on Cody and all that. I don't know. I think I would get those sort of angles and whatnot out of your mind. They've they've kept things clean with the exception of one women's match where Brandy hopped up on the apron with the, you know, with the uh, awesome Kong thing or whatnot in that mid-card match. They have really kept their promise of doing clean, definitive finishes. I don't get the idea that in a big world title match on their, I guess, third pay-per-view and their first pay-per-view after their television starts, so they, you know, you could expect a new audience for that one as well, that they're going to do a finish where MJF costs Cody the match. I think if MJF turns on Cody, it would, it would come in a post-match scenario. Maybe if Cody does win the title, MJF turns on him from there, and we head into a Cody-MJF promo. Something along those lines. I think Cody beating Jericho and MJF turning on Cody the same night is burning through way too many uh, you know, uh, uh, storylines way too quickly. But I'm just you know, throwing scenarios out there for it. I don't think you have MJF turn on Cody and cost him a match. Because that's just, this company hasn't booked that way. They said they weren't going to book that way. They said they were going to do clean finishes. And uh, they've stuck to it. So I think in our analysis, we have to get away from thinking about screw job finishes or bullshit finishes or schmoz finishes because they haven't done them. And uh, especially at the top of the card. So I think we have to get that out of our minds. And then I think maybe two years down the line, if they decide to do that in a big match, it'll have positive impact. Because if you do them once in a blue moon, like anything in wrestling, the less you do something, the more impact it has. So that's to their advantage too if they stay away from bullshit finishes and stick to doing clean finishes. You can do a bullshit finish at some point when the time is right. And then it has great impact. So uh, we'll see. But just coming off the heels of this announcement, as I record this, I think it's a a, a very good decision. And it sounds like it's going to be a, uh, a very good main event for that pay-per-view. So uh, we move on to New Japan Pro Wrestling Royal Quest. And actually, one more thing on AEW, just so people are clear. I think that All Out, was a well-booked show in a vacuum. But I still have big-picture booking issues with the company. I think the women's division has been booked like shit, and I've been vocal about that. Um, I don't like the idea of people winning battle royals and and, and ending up in title matches. So, you know, there, there's facets of the overall big-picture booking in the company that um, that I have complaints on, but... You know, at the end of part two, I had noted that I thought it was a very well-booked show. I think in a vacuum, the show... I can't think of uh, of one match now on the heels of this Cody versus Jericho announcement where I think the other person should have won. I think they got the winner right in every single match. And I think that there are solid directions coming off of nearly every match on the show. So from that perspective, I think this may have been their... Their, mo- their, their best book show as well. So, like I said, I, I think they have righted the ship to some extent. You know, it's like, you know, the two, Fight for the Fallen and, 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 um, and Fighter Fest 
started planting doubts in people's minds. Those weren't killer shows. And I think that this show sort of righted the ship and they have that positive momentum that they had coming off Double or Nothing back going into the TV, which was exactly what they needed. So anyway, let's transition to New Japan. So we've got Royal Quest and quickly my overall thoughts. They drew 6,119 fans to the uh, to the Copper Box which uh, appeared to be a uh, super no vacancy full house. So nice job there. You figured this show would would sell out with the first New Japan proper show coming to the UK. Uh, you knew that it was going to do well. And as far as the show itself, uh, it really felt like an authentic New Japan major event. And I'm not sure why it wouldn't have, but some of the US shows didn't. I mean, we've talked about that. Some of the early... Now, the G1 show in Dallas absolutely did. That felt like a full-on, authentic New Japan experience. But some of the early New Japan shows in the U.S., uh, you know, with the heavy ROH involvement and everything else, they, you know, there was just something was off. It didn't feel like you were watching a show from Osaka. Okay? This show, from the Copper Box, I'm going to tell you... A funny and somewhat embarrassing story. I'm watching this show on the VOD. And I'm watching it with the Japanese commentary. Because um, sometimes I watch with English commentary. Sometimes Japanese. I honestly don't even consciously pick. I just choose one of the files and watch it. And most of the time I pick the English. But sometimes I pick the Japanese by accident. And it's fine. It doesn't matter. And I'm watching this show with the Japanese commentary. And as I'm watching the show, I'm thinking to myself, man, there's a lot of white people in the crowd. The fuck is up with this show? And it didn't occur to me until the main event that I was like, oh yeah, this show's in England. No wonder everybody's white. So that's how authentic the show felt to me in terms of the presentation and the way the building looked that I had a fucking brain fart and I forgot that the show was actually taking place in the UK. So a very authentic feel. To the show. I don't think it was a great show. I thought it was a good show. I thought it was an easy watch. I did not watch live on Fight. I refused to pay New Japan twice to watch the same show. I am a New Japan World subscriber. I knew they were going to upload it. I can wait a day. Okay, I, I, I'm not paying Fight $24.99 or whatever it is and uh, paying New Japan twice. Okay, I'm just not going to do that. Not for Not for this show anyway. So, uh, maybe a Wrestle Kingdom. You get me to, if it's the only way I can watch live. Maybe G1 Final. Only way I can watch, maybe a show like this. No, that's not going to happen. Um, so, you know, I thought it was a good show. I thought it was an easy watch. And because I didn't watch live, I didn't have to deal with any of the technical issues that people who watch live had to deal with. So, I totally understand if that hurt people's enjoyment of the show. From what I understand, it basically cleared up on the business end. Once the title matches hit the ring, there were little to no um, technical issues, but this is going to do damage to fight. I mean, it's what I just talked about. It's hard enough to convince people to spend money on a show twice. I mean, if you're willing to put up 25 bucks or 30 bucks or whatever to watch this show live, chances are you're a New Japan World subscriber for $9.99, right? I mean, there's got to be a lot of crossover there. If you can't deliver a flawless streaming experience, the next time out, people aren't paying. I'm sorry, they're just not. So this has to do damage in terms of fight, uh, airing shows in the future, and how those shows are going to do. 
But uh, but listen, I watched video on demand, and I, I I probably should have watched the English commentary to see if they were able to clean that up. I'm sure that they were. I feel bad for Kevin Kelly and Gino uh, Gambino, who are an underrated crew, and I'm sure they did well here. But supposedly nobody could even hear their commentary on the first half of the show, which is an absolute disaster. But um, but anyway. Let's go over the show, and we're going to start at the top this time. We had Kazuchika Okada defending against Minoru Suzuki. And I got to tell you, this was fucking phenomenal. This may have been the best match of the weekend. It's neck and neck with Walter versus Tyler Bate, which we're going to talk about uh, in a bit. I thought it was uh, easily, easily better than any of the matches on All Out. And, and like I said, I don't think All Out had any bad matches. I thought All Out was a very solid show with a couple of um, um, very good matches, but uh, this was just another level. This was just... Um, the thing about o- this Okada-Suzuki match is, if you remember the match they had in the rain on the Suzuki produce show that was held outdoors, if you could have taken this match, right, and somehow mashed it up with the atmosphere of the rain match, not that the crowd was bad, because the crowd was great, but I just mean the the, the outdoors and the rain and the visual aspect of that match, and combined it with the work of this match, you'd have, like, a, a fucking 10-star match on the new Meltzer scale where he doesn't have a fucking cap. That's how good this match was, bell to bell. And Minoru Suzuki, uh, absolutely, you know, at 50 years old or whatever it is, bringing his A game, and he always works well with Okada. These guys have very good chemistry together. They always have unique matches together. You will remember distinctly every match that these two have had against one another. You have the rain match. You have this match here with the atmosphere in uh, in the copper box where Minoru Suzuki has been the top guy in Rev Pro or one of the top guys in Rev Pro for a number of years now. They love him there. You've got Okada defending the title. Uh, the first IWGP heavyweight title match that I would guess 99.9% of those fans in that building have ever seen live. Uh, so you, this match is very distinctive, especially, um, uh, uh, you know, and then you remember the the leg match where Suzuki, the, the uh, previous title match I had where Suzuki just tortured Okada's leg during Okada's big title run, his, his record-breaking title run. That match against Suzuki, which was very divisive, but also very memorable with the with the seemingly never-ending leg lock that Okada had to endure. Rich didn't like that match so much. I remember that I loved it. But again, another very distinctive match. These two not only have excellent chemistry with each other, they have very distinctive matches against one another. You know that? A lot of times, wrestlers will have a series of matches against one another, and you really can't tell them apart. They have very different kinds of matches. And, and Okada does a good job of that against everyone. You think about the Tanahashi matches, especially the early ones, right? All very different. Different stories being told. And it's the same deal here with Suzuki. So that's something else that Okada is very good at that maybe isn't talked about enough. But... This was great. And when Suzuki is on, and Suzuki puts on full effort, I mean, there's not a lot of wrestlers in the world I'd, I'd rather watch in a big match. It's just, it feels different. And a lot of people are starting to notice that he's just, he's, he's, he's not 
working the same as he used to and not taking a bunch of bumps. But the thing is, he never took a bunch of bumps. That's kind of what made his style distinctive. So, um, yeah, I thought this was an absolutely brilliant match. I went four and a half on this. Um, as I said at the top, all of our show reviews today are brought to you by Grapple. If you don't have a a uh, the Grapple app on your phone, download it right now. Set up a profile. You could follow me. You could follow Rich. Rich will probably follow you back. I probably won't. I don't follow anybody. But uh, I probably should, though. But uh, all of these show reviews today are brought to you by Grapple. I went four and a half on this. The Grapple consensus was 4.63 for Okada successfully defending the IWGP heavyweight title against Minoru Suzuki. We had Hiroshi Tanahashi against Zack Sabre Jr. And, you know, these guys have had a lot of matches recently. And I always struggle with these matches. It's it's one of those things where I recognize that they're well-worked. They're very well worked. But they just don't grab me. They're just not interesting. And quite honestly, they bore me. And I try. I really try with these Tanahashi Sabre matches, but they're just not for me. The one in MSG, I probably like that one the best. But that one suffered because it became after the Enzo Cass angle and the crowd, especially where I was sitting, because I was sitting right where all that mess took place, was still buzzing over that angle. And it really took something away from the early portion of that match. But I, I think of the matches they've had, I enjoyed that one the most. I think I went four flat on it. The first match they had last year, I, I hated. I didn't like it all. I thought it was the worst big-time Tanahashi match in a long time. And this match I thought was fine, and the work was good, but it was boring. And the worst thing a pro wrestling match can be is boring. You know, I was talking to uh, Aaron Bentley, Everything Elite, I almost said Everything Evolves again, uh, from Everything Elite, and, you know, and, and, and we were talking about it, and he's, you know, the worst thing, you know, it's like, the worst thing a wrestling match can be is boring, because the, the, the intent, the goal is to entertain you. So it leads to an interesting discussion. If a match bores you, can you think it's a good match? Because I do think it was well executed. And I do think they t- that they told a good story. Uh, but is it a good story if it, if it bores you? See, that's, the di- that's like the dichotomy here. I, I don't know the answer to that. And it's another reason why I think star ratings are tricky. Because... I don't know what to do with a match like this. I didn't like it. It, it was it, I, it struggled to hold my attention, but I recognize it was well-worked and well-executed. So what do you do? I threw three and a half on it. And it was probably generous. That's like three and a half stars for the work and zero stars for my entertainment value. Because... When these two guys, and Zack Sabre Jr. is not a guy who bores me with his style. But for whatever reason, so it's not, that's not the issue. And you know I love Tanahashi. But for whatever reason, when these two get in the ring with each other, it's a boring mix for me. And maybe because it's way too uh, grappling heavy and it's not 
the type of grappling that holds my attention. And it kind of leads to a discussion of, it's almost like people who enjoy heavy grappling in their wrestling, they're kind of elitist. They are. It's like, if you don't enjoy grapple-heavy wrestling, it's like you're a plebe who doesn't have sophisticated tastes. And I think that's such bullshit. You know, it's like, what makes a grapple-heavy style any more sophisticated, right, than flying wrestling or fast-paced lucharisu or uh, death matches or brawling? What makes grappling more sophisticated than any other? Re- but you kind of get the sense that people put it on a higher pedestal. It's a higher art of pro wrestling. When, I mean, when you really break it down, it may be the easiest form of pro wrestling to execute. I mean, is it harder to learn how to grapple than it is to execute good fly, like good flying moves? I don't, I don't think that's, I think it's easier. To be good at, I'm talking about people who are good at flying. You're, you're elite flying wrestlers. Or you're elite, uh, you know, Lucha Research, the Dragon Gate guys. To get good at that style, to me, seems like it would be way harder than to be great at grappling. You know, especially worked grappling. Where you're handing each other limbs and cooperating on the transitions. Right? So you basically only have to have a basic understanding of the grappling. And and don't let anybody tell you that dudes who grapple are doing sophisticated psychology with their worked grappling because they're not, okay? I watch MMA. I was a hardcore MMA fan for about 15 years. Okay, I don't watch as much anymore. I understand grappling, okay? And I don't care who you throw at me. The the fat, overweight, 50-year-old maestros in Mexico, Tim Thatcher, Zack Sabre Jr. I don't care who you want to talk about. None of them are sprinkling in brilliant psychology with their grappling and setting up holds the way that they do in real fights. They're just not doing it. Anyone who tells you they are is lying. So it's not like there's some higher art to it. If you like watching wrestlers grapple, that's fine. The point of this isn't to shame you. The point of this is to say is it's not a sophisticated form of pro wrestling above and beyond all other forms of pro wrestling. I don't buy that at all. I don't buy it. I think deathmatch is the easiest form of pro wrestling to be good at. I've said that before. I think it just requires guts. You just got to have balls. And I respect the balls that those guys have. I respect that G-Raver put enough trust in Jimmy Lloyd, of all people, to hold him up and deliver whatever the fuck they were trying at the top of that ladder with the, uh, with the light tubes. And you know why I respect G-Raver for that? Because look what happened to him. And you know that's the risk every time. So I think deathmatch and plunder is the easiest style to be good at. You just have to have the guts and the balls to do it. But I don't think that you know, grappling, 
the grapple heavy style is any hard, is it would be harder to learn uh you know than 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 some of these other wrestling styles i don't to be good at um anyone can you know jump off the top turnbuckle i'm talking about good high flyers innovative smooth crisp landing where they're supposed to land i'm talking about uh you know, people who are good at their style of pro- I think, you know, grappling is probably the... But but for, for whatever reason, it's put on a pedestal. You're, you're not sophisticated if you don't enjoy grapple fuck. And, you know, that's, that's what some of these people will make... And I don't buy it. I don't buy it at all. If it's boring, it's boring. If you don't find it boring, that's great. But there's nothing wrong with, you know... It's, it's, there's a reason they added high spots to pro wrestling. There's a reason it evolved the way it did. If you like that, those bare basics, that's great. I'm watching Tanahashi and Zack Sabre Jr., okay? And it's struggling to hold my attention. And it's not really building to anything. You know, occasionally it'll lead to some body part work. You know, but very rarely in these grapple matches do you see, you know, a guy working over one body part to open up a hold on another body part. You don't see that kind of psychology in these matches. It's nonsense. So, I don't know. These matches just never do it for me, and I like both guys a lot. Tanahashi wins the Rev Pro undisputed British heavyweight title, as Rich and I speculated that he may in this one. I went three and a half, and grapple users just about four, 3.93. Kenta Tomohiro Ishii, and there's a lot to unpack here. I didn't rate this. I didn't know what to do with this. Um, I was watching something that really looked like it was going to be special. This was well on its way to being... I don't know if it would have been the best Kenta match in New Japan because I thought he had some G1 matches that were spectacular, that that were great matches. But it was well on its way to being Kenta's best performance in New Japan, if that makes sense. He was just crisp and clean and on his game. And that, the same can't be said for all of his new uh, G1 matches. We talked about that, where a lot of the matches I thought were great matches, even with the the minor issues with his uh, performances. Uh, That wasn't happening here. And then he got knocked out on a, uh, a backdrop, and it all fell apart. And there was that really, really ugly scary sequence where he kind of threw this half-hearted lariat which could have passed for part of the work except that then he just basically collapsed on the ground and Tomohiro Ishii had no idea what to do. He basically barked at the referee. I guess to suspend disbelief you can uh, the idea was he was asking the referee to stop the match Uh, but then you know he, 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 he went in on the attack Kenta got his bearings back. Things were going okay again for a few minutes. And then, uh, you know, there was a, uh, another spot where they kind of lost each other on a suplex. And other than that, 
Kenta eventually, he got his bell rung, and eventually he put it all together, and they finished the match, and everything was mostly fine from there. But that ugly sequence where he threw that lariat, and then there was supposed to be a power slam spot, and he kind of just, time stood still. Very ugly. Very scary. Um, In other, you know, WWE, they without question would have stopped the match. There's no question about it. In that regard, WWE is very careful. New Japan, um, you know, not so much. They're not going to stop a match unless a guy, you know, legitimately cannot stand up and continue. The advantages to New Japan is the tour. You know, you get a lot of time off between tours. They cycle guys in and out of tours. So, and you work a lot of six and eight man tags where, you know, you don't have to take a bunch of bumps. In some cases, you don't have to take any bumps. WWE, they'll stop a match. They'll, you know, always err on the side of caution and stop matches, but it's nonstop. It's every week. It's house shows. It's lots of singles matches. So there's arguments on both sides to what you're going to consider safer. When I look at the injuries, it seems to me the WWE style is more dangerous. Constantly seeing injuries in that company and people on the shelf, um, you know, whereas in New Japan, might not be the fairest comparison because guys will work, or, you know, are, are, are more apt to work through injuries in New Japan. But you, you just don't see the same sheer number of injuries in New Japan as you do in WWE. But what you do see are situations like this, where a guy is clearly unconscious and continues to work a match while he's completely out of it. So it was weird. The match was still very good, but it's impossible to ignore that brutal, you know, 90-second sequence, which took a lot of people out of the match. It's interesting in that when I look at Grapple, people still went three and three and three-quarter stars on this thing. It's at three and three-quarter stars on Grapple. I look on Cage Match, and it's at, you know, 6.58, so about three and a quarter stars on Cage Match. So people still enjoyed the match, which is a little weird to me because it fell apart like no other match has fallen apart before in recent memory. It really did. But everything else, you know, up until that point was great, and they finished up fine. And it also had the Grill of Destiny run in at the end. So I don't know. People really, I think those are, exorbitantly high ratings for a match that had all of the issues that it had. And I don't know. I have a problem. I, I can't, I didn't even bother rating it. This got the old NR from me, but Kenta wins the never title. Little assist from God, the tag team, not the entity. And, uh, you know, off we go with Kenta, never open weight champ, bullet club representative. Uh, he says he's fine. He tweeted the next day. He went to the hospital. They checked him out. They let him go. So, uh, you know, he got his bell rung. It happens. We don't see it to that degree very often. You know, you see it in football. You see it in pro football. And then guys will go into concussion protocol. They'll stay out the rest of the game. They'll, you know, sometimes miss a week or two. Um, you know, sometimes you see it in baseball when a guy gets hit in the head, when a guy gets beaned. And, you know, they'll go on the uh, seven-day concussion DL or, or whatever. Um, you know, but they get their bell rung and they're out of it for a 
couple of minutes, and, and, and that's what happened here. He got his bell rung and he got knocked out. You know, I don't think it's, uh, I'm not going to do this today, but, you know, it's not something where I was, like, disgusted or aghast at what I was watching, um, but probably because I wasn't watching live and I knew that he finished the match and he was all right. Had I been watching this live, I, I may have had a very different opinion. So, hard for me to assess from that standpoint because watching the match, I knew that he was okay because I didn't watch it until two days later. So, maybe I'm the wrong person to talk about it. Speaking of Gorilla's Destiny, they defeat Aussie Open. Aussie Open make their New Japan debuts. Aussie Open, as expected, in what was a train wreck of a finish, defeated Josh Bodum and Shaw Samuels at the Rev Pro show the night before where the referee uh, inadvertently called a pinfall that he shouldn't have called. I have to think the right team won, though. Everyone and their mother, I mean, it was a virtual, you know, everyone figured Aussie Open was going to win that match. So at least the right team won. And we didn't have a situation where, you know, the wrong team was moving on to the pay. I don't know how they would have gotten out of that. But I haven't seen the Rev Pro show. I will eventually. But let's talk about this match. Aussie Open, I thought I was a little concerned with how they would come off in the New Japan ring, but I thought they looked great. And, you know, the, the aesthetic, you know, they had new gear. They didn't look out of place. They didn't look shindy, which was a concern of mine. The work was good. Uh, the match structure, I would have liked to have seen a Mark Davis hot tag. I think that's one of the strengths of the team. We didn't get that. I thought Fletcher uh, looked good here. I thought everybody looked good here. I even think Grills of Destiny looked good in the match. And as expected, they retained the titles. I think that, you know, Aussie Open is a team you're going to see moving forward in New Japan. I think they're probably a lock for the tag league. And uh, this was an encouraging performance because I didn't know what I was going to think of them in New Japan. And I talked about them extensively last week. I'm not going to do it again here. If you want to hear my broader thoughts on them, you can listen to last week's show. But uh, I was pleasantly surprised by their performance. And I was pleasantly surprised by this match. I thought this was a a nice little match. And with Grills of Destiny, uh, you're never really sure what you're going to get. I went three and three quarters on this. Grapple users had it at 3.46. So about three and a half on grapple. So I liked it a little bit more than the uh, than the grapple consensus. And uh, the back half of this show, you know, if Kenta doesn't get knocked out, and if you liked the Tanahashi Saber match better than I did from a style standpoint, very strong back end, but uh, but but certainly not the kind of back end you're accustomed to on a big New Japan show. Aside from the main event, this show really could have used one more killer match. It had a bunch of good matches and the one great match, but on a New Japan show, you kind of want that second great match, at least one more. And maybe for you, it was Tanahashi Saber. It wasn't for me. Maybe for you, it was Kenta Tomohiro Ishii. And you could, uh, you know, overlook the, uh, the concussion issue there. But, you know, that wasn't the case for me. But I still enjoyed the back end of this thing. And I'm not going to do an extensive review of the uh, first half of the show. Other than I'm going to talk about uh, Robbie Eagles and Will Ospreay. This was really Robbie Eagles' debut as a member of Chaos. Defeating Phantasmo and Taiji Ishimori. Not a title match. But they win, setting up a future title match. Or at least I would uh, assume. I haven't looked at those match cards yet that, that, uh, that dropped for the next tour. But Robbie Eagles and Will Ospreay. 
I mean, these guys already have a ton of creative double team moves that they've put together. And these are two great wrestlers. And this is what I'm talking about. These are two upper echelon flying wrestlers. And um, I don't know. I just have a much greater respect for what guys like this can do with their bodies and, and, and in terms of putting together a wrestling match than your great grappling wrestlers, uh, what they can do. is where I, I, can, uh, I can appreciate both, but I, I have more respect for your great flying wrestler. I think what they do is harder, especially incorporating that into a wrestling match and having it make sense. Uh, you know, with what the great flyers do. And, and, and these two already have a bunch of uh, great double team moves and stuff that they come, came up with. And you knew that they would. Will Ospreay is a very creative guy. And Rob Eagles is uh, is a guy who's finally breaking out worldwide um, and is a great pro wrestler in his own right. And I think that eventually when Ospreay moves on, he'll be the uh, top junior in chaos. And good for him. I went three and a half on that. Uh, to me, it was easily the best match on the undercard um, and what I'm considering the undercard is everything before the title matches so uh, grapple ma- grapple users agreed they went 3.55 the rest of the matches we had Rapongi 3k defeating Rendarita, Taguchi and Uminu in the opener I like watching Rapongi 3k uh, and, and when I all three of them including Rocky I like them as a three man unit I wish they would get a never open weight six man title shot I really do um, in the near future. Because what else are you doing with Sho and Yo right now? So, um, they don't have to win it, but I'd like to see them get a shot. Grapple went 2.61 on that one. We had uh, Juice Robinson and Kota Ibushi defeating Hikuleo and Yujiro. Hikuleo has been working on excursion in Europe, so this was his first New Japan match in some time. Juice and Ibushi obviously won that one. And um, Grapple users went 2.62 on that match. I went 2 and 3 quarters, so right there in the same neighborhood. And then we had Sonata and Tetsuya Naito defeating Chase Owens and Jay White as we continue to heat up the Tetsuya Naito-Jay White feud and eventual Intercontinental title match. Grapple users went 2.83 on that one, and I went 2 and 3 quarters. So uh, once again, on the same page with some of these undercard matches. Look, this was a nice little show with an awesome main event. It just could have used a second awesome match. Now, the crowd was on fire for this entire show, particularly, and I, I really should mention this, during the face-off between Gorillas of Destiny and Aussie Open. People were red fucking hot for that and behind Aussie Open, which was really cool to see. So that added a little something to that match. So that was Royal Quest. Uh, we do know that because of that Gorillas of Destiny run-in and some of the events in uh, Cork and Hall on, on, uh, at the beginning of, uh, of, of the most uh, of the current tour, that Tomohiro Ishii and Yoshihashi will be challenging Gorillas of Destiny for the tag team titles at the end of the tour. So, um, Gorillas of Destiny have drawn the ire of Tomohiro Ishii. I don't think they're going to win the titles. But my favorite Yoshihashi is when Yoshihashi is paired with Ishii. It's like Ishii and his little buddy. And I like that. And I think they make for a very fun tag team. It's really the only use that Yoshihashi has, uh, you know, to offer these days is when he's teaming with Ishii. So I'm going to be into that. Rich and I will get more into the tour 
and what's coming up and what's going on on that tour when he comes back on the show next week. I don't have time to do that this week because uh, we're running out of show here. And I've got to get to NXT UK TakeOver Cardiff. This review, once again, is brought to you by our friends at Grapple. And we'll be going over all of the ratings of NXT Take a UK TakeOver Cardiff. A mouthful of a show. Which, listen, of these three shows, and this is going to sound crazy, I think you can make a legitimate case that this was the best of the three shows on the big weekend. I really think you can make that case. Because the Walter Tyler Bate main event was um, just as good and in the same neighborhood as the as the Okada-Suzuki uh, match. Which means it was better than anything on All Out. And then the rest of the card, I mean, you know, when you look at the Cesaro-Ilya match and the three-way for the tag team titles, I mean, I don't think it would be crazy to think that this show had two matches better than anything else on the New Japan show, depending where you stood on Tanahashi and Sabre. And those two matches were right there with anything that was on All Out. So what you had here with the TakeOver show was a show with as I'm starting to lose my voice, was a show with maybe the best high-end stuff in terms of depth of the high-end stuff, and then everything else on the show was pretty good. I know there's one match that people didn't like at all that um, you know I didn't think was nearly as bad as people are saying, but we'll get to that. But uh, but listen, I mean, you know, um, I, I look. I, I don't know what my definitive opinion is because I, I did like all three shows, but I don't think it's a crazy opinion if you think this is the best of the three. All right, so let's break it all down. Show opened with Noam Dar against Travis Banks. Hey, you know, before we break it down, though, I have a bone to pick. All of you people who told me when I complained uh, vehemently last week on the flagship and behind the paywall, Thursday TV reviews, Patreon.com slash Voices of Wrestling, $5 tier. Listen to Thursday TV reviews. Break down NXT UK every week, along with 205 Live and NXT. Um, I complained that on this takeover, they didn't book their best and most charismatic wrestlers, including, on a much longer list, uh, Rhea Ripley and Pete Dunne. And everybody told me, well, you can't put them on the takeover because they're on NXT now, and... Rhea Ripley just challenged Shayna Baszler, and Pete Dunne has been wrestling on NXT, and and they're not on NXT UK anymore, and you can't book them on the show. And both of those people were booked on this show, ultimately. Rhea Ripley worked the pre-show for the tele, for the matches taped for NXT UK against Piper Niven, so she was in the building. And Pete Dunne was booked for the show because he came out after Tyler Bate lost to Walter and attended to his friend and all that. So they were in the building anyway! Exactly like I said they could be. So there's no reason you couldn't have put Rhea Ripley and Pete Dunne on this show. How many takeovers does NXT UK get per year? Go all out and put your best foot forward. And they didn't do that. It was an excellent show. But it could have been even better. If you put your best wrestlers on the card. They did Rhea Ripley versus Piper Niven anyway. They just did it for TV. Put it on the damn takeover. And give them a couple extra minutes. 
It was a hot feud. Why was Noam Dar and Travis Banks on this show instead of Rhea Ripley and Piper Niven, which was a better built feud? You could have put Dar and Banks on the TV taping portion of the show. And you would have improved this show by having the hotter match on the actual takeover. You can't find a way to shoehorn Pete Dunn onto this show, but we can get a double dose of Gallus. So I'm sorry. I you know I don't buy it. I didn't buy it before, and I don't buy it. they were there. You could have put him on the show. Cassius Ono was there. You put him on TV instead of the takeover. So even though the show turned out well, I'm going to be fair here. I banged on the lineup before the show, and I'm going to bang on it now because all these people I wanted on the show were in the building anyway. These takeovers are essentially the pay-per-views for this brand. Why are you leaving off your best and most charismatic wrestlers? Doesn't make sense. If you have to have a three-way for the tag team titles, get Gallus out of there. We get enough of Gallus. Put Ackner and Bartell in the damn match. We don't need Dar and Banks on, on, the, on, on the takeover. It had a one-week build. A one-week build. And it was an issue that nobody cared about from a fan perspective. So, I mean, geez, you know, it's, I don't know. There, you know, you just put your best foot forward is all I'm saying. And they didn't do that here. And this was a great show and it could have been an even better show had they put their best foot forward. So anyway, the show kicked off with Noam Dar versus Travis Banks. I just talked about that. It really only had, you know, uh, a one. You know, they announced it one week before the event. So they didn't even have a super strong build for this. But uh, look, I thought this was a really good uh, showing for Dar. This was one of his best WWE matches outside of that street fight against Tony Nese on 205 Live. This was probably Noam Dar's best WWE match. So I will say that uh, sort of uh, as something positive towards him since I do pick on him a lot. And I thought this was a uh, a decent little opener. I liked it. A, uh, I seem to like it a lot more than the consensus did. I went three and a half on this. I thought the work was solid. And I liked that Dar essentially won the match clean. And I thought that the, uh, the the crowd was into it. So I didn't have any gripes with this. And I thought this was a good little opener. Grapple users, the consensus was about three stars. They went 2.93. So I was about half a star higher uh, than the consensus on the opener. Next up was an awesome match. Cesaro, who promised to show up, was, uh, was uh, challenged by Ilya Dragunov. And I've had my issues with Ilya. I don't get the guy. I think... Um, he makes a lot of funny faces and throws a lot of chops, and I really don't get it. I think it's the kind of thing where he really connects with those WXW fans, and it's just, I, you know, I talked about Sandman and Jimmy Havoc earlier, where I get it with those two guys. I think Ilya is, is similar, and in that I don't get what the WXW fans see in him. I, it just it, it's always been lost on me, but he has an uh, an undeniable crowd connection when he's in that environment. Hasn't completely translated to NXT UK, but this match fucking ruled. And Cesaro, in watching him just walk down to the ring 
right? Let alone the match. Just watching him enter the ring and then the match itself and how great it was, it's like you can't help but think, my God, has this company squandered this man. And I know that the narrative has gone from he's underutilized and they're not giving him a chance to, well, actually, he's being used perfectly. He can't be a top-line guy. He's, you know, a great tag team wrestler and a solid mid-carder, and that's exactly how they're using him. And, and they're, but, but I disagree with that. I do think that he's been squandered. You know, and when I watch a match like this and I just see, you know, how he comes across as the most, you know, important wrestler on this show and the way that he walked to the ring and the way that he wrestled this match. And he just came across like the biggest deal on this show. And, and, and I'm sorry, but there's a way that you can translate that to the main roster. And I think that's just sometimes guys know how they're slotted and it comes through in, in the way that they present themselves. There's just a certain confidence that isn't always there when wrestlers feel like the company isn't behind them and isn't going to get behind them. And I feel like Cesaro came off like a confident superstar here because he was treated like a big deal. The big you know, main roster star coming in to take on any challenger and the crowd treated him like a star. And that confidence just oozed out of him. And it's just a little off on the main roster. He doesn't exude the same. And it's just that, that little subtle difference in confidence can make all the difference in a world on your screen and inside the ring. And I'm watching this match. And I'm watching him physically dominate Ilya Dragunov, who's bumping all over the place for this guy. Again, I've been hard on Dragunov, but he was great here. To push this guy and get him over, it's you, not him. It is you, not him. The problem is you. Because this guy is great. And he looks phenomenal. And he wrestles phenomenal. And when he's confident, he comes off like a superstar. And that's on you if you're going to throw him in a dopey tag team with, with uh, Sheamus. Or you're going to put him in a tag team with Tyson Kidd, who you've never pushed. Or you're going to put him firmly in the mid card and have him trade win. That's on you if you can't get this fucking beast of a man over. It's on you. It's not on him. And he is underutilized. And they did squander the prime of his career. And I don't want to hear that he couldn't be a top guy. Or he was perfectly slotted. Or he was given chances. It's all bullshit. Okay? If you can't... I'm watching this and thinking, I, I could get this guy... I've never booked for... I would get this guy over. It's easy. You just saw it. Have him go on Raw and do that. And then do it again the next week. And the next week. How do you blow this guy? Don't clip that. But how do you how do you blow it with this guy? I'm watching this thinking this is the most obvious fucking you can't watch this and think, oh I yeah, we can't push him. What the fuck are you watching then? So anyway, this ruled. And 
The only issue I have with this is we can't keep having main roster wrestlers come up to these takeovers and beat the takeover. You know, they beat Jordan Devlin with Finn Balor. They're beating Ilya here. Now, look, they haven't pushed Ilya yet, so it's a little different than the Devlin thing. The Devlin thing, he was already being pushed. I have a bigger problem with that. Ilya lost to Ono on TV. He hasn't really been pushed hard yet. Fine. But it's also a stark reminder that NXT UK is NXT. It's considered developmental. So when a main roster wrestler comes to this show, right, they're main roster wrestlers. They're, you know, in the canon of WWE, they're slotted above these people. So they're going to win their matches. They're going to win their matches. And again, I don't have as much of a problem with this one as I did with Devlin losing. That sucked. Should have been someone else if you're going to do that gimmick. But Cesaro looked great here. And it made me want, in a perfect world, him to stay on this brand. Because I am just envisioning a Cesaro-Walter feud at the top, and fuck, do we need that. Oh my god. Especially the way Cesaro looks here. I mean, he came across here the way that Walter hasn't come across. The way that Walter comes across everywhere else but NXT UK. That's how Cesaro came across here. But I understand the economics of it and everything else. He's not going to move backwards to the fourth tier. I get it. But it really is a shame that it can't work out that way. So, Cesaro Dragunov. I went four stars on this. Notebook match for me. Grapple users, 3.85. Flash Morgan Webster and Mark Andrews. Eventually, Rich and I figured out that they were from Wales. And uh, what do you know? WWE, for once, did the right thing. And the local wrestlers here win the titles. Crowd was so into this and so behind FMW and Mandrews. And they win the titles. And it was the right decision. And it was a hot crowd. But this really felt like a three-way match that should have been not a three-way match. I mean, you didn't need Gallus here. And the idea was to give Grizzled Young Vets an out and an excuse and a reason to complain on the TV show that, uh, you know, they lost their match, their their titles in a three-way. I get it. But, you know, a Flash Morgan Webster and Mark Andrews win over Grizzled Young Vets, mano y mano, whatever, you know, the Spanish translation of two versus two would be, okay, would have come off even hotter in the building than adding the third team in there, which it just felt like the third team just... I didn't want Gallus there. I just wanted to see the other two teams go at it. And this was all action. It was a ton of fun. Um, If not for the main event, you know, you could, I think, easily consider this um, the, uh, uh, you know, the match of the night if the main event hadn't been so great. Um, So... You know, if you liked it better than the Cesaro Dragonov match, I didn't. I thought the Cesaro Dragon match uh, was a little bit better than this, but I could I could see you going the other way on it. I went three point seven five on this, uh, mostly because the the you know Gallus being involved dragged down a little bit for me. I just kept getting annoyed when Gallus came. and uh, Grapple users had this at. I keep losing it. Four point oh seven. So there you go. So there you go. Grapple users did like this more than the Cesaro Ilya match. I went the other way on it. Either way, two very enjoyable matches. Joe Coffey. 
Dave Mastiff, last man standing, one of my least favorite stipulations. Uh, listen, it started with the ropes breaking, the top rope breaking at the start of the match, and then they went to the outside of the ring. They did some table spots. I didn't expect to like this, and I didn't really want to like this, but I thought it was pretty good. I went three and a half. It held my attention, and it did not overstay its welcome at all. Grapple users 2.92 on Mastiff versus Coffee. So I was uh, way over the consensus on that one. And as the observer trickles out, Meltzer went two and a half on this match. How about that? He didn't like it at all. I got to read the review, but I'm just looking at the uh, uh, the ratings. Here's a match that a lot of people didn't like. Tony Storm loses the NXT UK women's title to Kaylee Ray. The grapple users went 2.63 on this one. And I saw a lot of people burying this match. I went three. I thought it was fine. I didn't think this was any better or any worse than the, uh, you know, than the Joshi match on, on, on All Out, if we're going to use a comparison point. Um, it definitely underwhelmed. I mean, you know, these two definitely uh, have better matches in them and have had better matches. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, it didn't land. And Kaylee Ray's title reign does not get off on, on a positive footing because this was not positively reviewed in most places. And Tony Storm's deceptively long title reign now ends. I thought she sold the loss very well on the out, you know, on the floor after the match. She really made the title feel important in the way that she looked uh, just utterly depressed and heartbroken that she had lost this match to Kaylee Ray. So that's one positive that I'll bring up about the match that I haven't seen other people talk about. But uh, that was Kaylee Ray over Tony Storm, which brings us to the main event, which was just an incredible match. When I saw the runtime of 42 minutes and 12 seconds, which, by the way, this match was longer than the entire NXT UK television episode that aired this week. How about that? So when I saw this runtime of 42-12, like everybody else, I was like, oh, fuck, I got to sit through another 40-minute NXT main event. But the difference here was this was so awesome from start to finish that it enthralled me for every, every second of this match held my attention. Every second of it. And Walter has not come across like Walter in NXT UK. He just hasn't. It's just something is off. This was the Walter that I'm used to. In there against the undersized opponent. Perfect opponent for this style of match. Walter excels against the undersized opponent. He really does. It just fits him like a glove. And Tyler Bate, who we forget how great he is. Because he, you know, it's like you go into witness protection when you're in NXT UK. You just don't see these people wrestle forever. You know, they pop up every few weeks. They hardly ever have takeovers. They're not doing a lot of indie shots anymore, a lot of these guys. You forget how great Tyler Bate is and how young he is. He has a chance to be an all-timer. He really does. And this was a superlative, uh, a superlative performance from both guys. And just a tremendous, tremendous match. And, I, you know, if you want to tell me you thought this was better than Okada Suzuki, I don't think you'd be wrong. I don't think you'd be crazy. 
I mean, I gave them, you know, I went four and a half on this. Same as Okada Suzuki. And I don't know which one I preferred. You could easily talk me into this one. In fact, I think I did prefer Walter Tyler Bate. Ever so slightly over Okada Suzuki. So if you saw the New Japan show but didn't watch the NXT UK, look, I know a lot of people don't watch NXT UK. For your point of comparison, listen, you can trust Joe Lanza. I'm an accurate star raider and I have the best opinions, okay? Go watch this match because it was great. It's the best match of the weekend. On what may have been the best show of the weekend. Despite an underwhelming women's title match, a last man standing match that maybe I was the only person on the planet that didn't hate it. Although, you know, cage match, they went 6.76. It was like a three and a half star. Cage match agrees with me. Grapple doesn't. Dave Meltzer doesn't, but cage match agrees with me on the last man standing. But Walter Tyler Bate was a great, great match. And this was the first time I felt like Walter was Walter in WWE. Even Imperium is like a knockoff dollar store ring conf. Like, it's the same idea and some of the same members. It's just that WWE watered down, we have to change something about it feeling that you get. Right? So that feels a little off. I think Walter talks too much in WWE. I don't want to hear Walter cut promos and fucking talk shit. It's not like he's a terrible talker. I want Walter to be a silent fucking killer. The way he was in his first couple weeks in the company. I think he talks too much now. Let someone else do his talking. Let him just beat people up. But this match more than anything else, even more than Walter being Walter again, this match to me was a reminder of how great Tyler Bate is. And he is, make no mistake, he is great. And the only thing that's going to hold him back in his career is about four or five inches. Because he is very short. And this is a knock. Uh, this is not a good company to be very short in. But if he were fucking five foot nine, let alone six foot, he'd get the push to match his talent. And his talent is otherworldly. I mean, he's incredible. So, Walter retains the title. I think Meltzer, if I'm reading this right, went five and a quarter. So he broke his scale again for this one. That's how great it was. It really was a great match. What'd Meltzer do for Okada Suzuki? Four and a half. So there you go. Dave Meltzer and Joe Lanza are telling you that Walter Tyler Bate was the match of the weekend. And, you know, honestly, that was probably the best of the three shows. And I liked all three shows. If I had to rank them out, I'd go NXT UK TakeOver Cardiff, All Out, and then Royal Quest. Royal Quest because the first half of the show was really a nothing, you know, outside of the Will Eagles tag. The other three tags were just your usual New Japan Big Show tags, you know. And, you know, so I thought the undercards were stronger on the other two shows. And quite honestly, you know, the, the UK TakeOver show peaked higher more often than the New Japan show did too. And all out for that matter. So, great weekend of wrestling. 
and the Rev Pro show, I can't, I haven't seen it, so I can't comment. But wildly varying reviews on that one, basically depending on how you felt about all of the shenanigans in the main event. Some people felt it totally destroyed it, but I had other people tell me that that was greatly exaggerated and it was a great match anyway. We do know that the tag team tournament final fell apart. That we know for sure. But I guess your opinion on the Rep Pro Show is going to uh, reside directly on what you thought of the um, main event, whether it was overbooked or whether it told the story that it needed to tell in regards to the control of the company stuff and that the match was great anyway. That's where you're going to fall on that show, at least what it sounds like. I can't wait to watch it. But that's it for me. I'm out of breath. I mean, you you guys know I don't mind, uh, you know, doing solo shows. But when you have to review three wrestling shows on a solo show, man, it takes it out of you. And I almost went the full three hours here. So. And I'm losing my voice. So for the absent Rich Krejci, who's traveling around Iceland, I'm Joe Lanza. I'll talk to you next week.